Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Cana Rince podcast. Uh, this is a sort of interview come discussion show. This is something a bit different because, although yes, as we've uh, increasingly got onto the radar of uh, of industry luminaries, and um, we've had a few approaches from people recently to do different things, uh, to feature them on the Sound of Play Music podcast. We've had composers, as you'll know. Um, to do interviews and various other things. But this one was very much unexpected and a massively uh, exciting surprise out of the blue. Not long after the uh, recent Two Human podcast came out, that was volume four, issue 178, I started getting messages from uh, a man uh, claiming to be <laughs> Dennis Dyack on Facebook. And then I realized, yeah, it actually is Dennis Dyack off of Facebook, uh, off of, well, off of Silicon Knights, off of Quantum Entanglement. And here he is, Dennis Dyack. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for asking to come on Kane and Rince. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I I was so impressed uh, by the tenor of your guys' podcasts and the way the tone and the way that you were very objective about things. And I just by listening to the podcast and like so much, I thought I could answer a lot of questions and really hope that you would uh, let me on and we could talk about things. So it's my pleasure, totally. Fantastic. And you brought with you a colleague from Quantum. Phil? Correct. And uh, yeah, hi. Yeah, hi, Phil. Uh, now you've got um, to explain. Now people will be familiar with who Dennis is, I'm sure, um, and his accent is is well known. Um, but your accent, Phil, is is slightly slightly more of a mishmash, if we may say. Yeah, it's kind of transatlantic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I'm from the UK, but I've been living in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, in the US for the last couple of years, and I, I don't think I can. I still can't do a good American. American accent, but I also don't think I can do a good English accent anymore either. So I'm yeah. somewhere in between. And uh, but yeah, I've been working with Dennis for a few years now. We've been uh, working on Shadow of the Eternals and, and Quantum Entanglement and some other things behind the scenes as well. And mm -hmm. uh, it's been a it's been a great pleasure to work with him this time. I, I first met him back in I think 2003 during an E3 show. Uh, right. um, my history way back when was was with the very enthusiast internet press for mm. games journalism back in the early 2000s and the late the late 90s and uh uh he was kind enough to hook up for a uh, for an interview and uh we it was whilst he was doing twin snakes and uh we had a quick chat but we we really didn't talk about the game very much it was more about industry and future predictions and stuff and it was just great and uh so anyway uh, 10 years later this campaign starts up for shadow of the eternals and he's needing some help on the forums. As it turns out, I, I have a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. I mailed the admin saying, hey, you're having some issues. If I can help out, let me let me know. And I got a message from Dennis saying, hey, I'm the admin. Help. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it was my so first forum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a, I would never done a forum before. And it, we, I chose them. Um, I actually did a lot of research on it. And I did Zenforo. I chose Zenforo. And it, it, back then, hardly anyone was using it. Now it's all the rage, I think. Mm. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, Phil was a godsend uh, for helping us getting things running because he just jumped in right away and was able to get things going very quickly. And at the time, too, um, that's when we were using um, uh, the Amazon cloud servers, which were mm. insanely complicated uh, because you, you, you needed a lot of sort of hardware knowledge. And I, I've got... My background's computer science, um, but still, even with that knowledge, it was hard to make sure the servers were set up properly, and we actually had to get some people to help us with that, too. And Zenfora was not set up to run on 
basically they're massively parallel systems. So Zen 4 wasn't set up that well. So it, uh, to work on that uh, type of system. So yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was quite interesting, huh, Phil? It was, yeah, it was a fun time. And I remember a lot of time uh, I was doing a full-time job at the time and having to fix permissions on hundreds of people a day whilst I was at work yeah. without anyone seeing. And <laughs> oh, no. It was uh, quite fun. But yeah, so it, it was kind of, it was kind of cool because uh, Dennis actually recognized my voice from 10 years previously. <laughs> wow. And uh, we sort of hit it off from there and, uh, and, and we've been working together ever since. And uh, my role is a very strange one within the company. Um, mm. The title is Mysterious. Um, and it's the chief of strategy and ideation. But I'm not going to explain too much what that is. But it, it, it sort of has some, some element of community manager, some element of design, some element of business strategy and some other pieces as well. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. And uh, one of the things, uh, I know we're not talking too much about quantum yet, but one of the things that's been really cool is, you know, being in a completely different location. I mean, when we started this, I was in the UK. I'm now in Nashville. Uh, Dennis is up in Toronto. And we, I think we figured out a pretty good way of doing distributed working where we're, we're in completely different places and yet still very productive. So it's been very cool. Excellent. Well, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, historical and recent. Obviously, um, if there's things you don't want to say that's, or can't say, that's absolutely fine. If there's things you do say and then realize that you didn't want to say them, uh, then just let us know and we'll, we'll, we'll quietly, we'll quietly Hopefully. exercise those later. Hopefully that won't be the case. I'll, no, sure. I'll do my best to uh, right. to uh, stay on track. Let's uh, start back uh, at the early days of Silicon Knights, if we can, um, because sure. um, I'll be honest, like, you know, I've, I've been gaming a long time, um, but the games of uh, Strategic Simulations International uh, and and their ilk used to terrify me. Um, so I got to admit that I didn't play uh, Cyber Empires, Fantasy Empires, um, mm. because I just before kind of role playing games had become had been made more accessible I, uh, and and strategy games. I, I was just intimidated. I, I you know I grew up in the arcades playing arcade games, and these these really deep, complicated games look look beyond me. But um, these were so these were. Um, were these on a, a ST and Amiga and PC back in the early 90s, that sort of format? Yep, so, um, correct. My f The first game, Cyber Empires, or Steel Empires, um, mm. was actually, we had two publishers. Um, there was a publisher um, called Millennium yes. that did a game. Yeah. A game called James Pond. Do you That's guys right. remember James Absolutely. Pond? Absolutely. Yeah. Robocod, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So I met those guys. Um, and they were great. I, I really liked them. And so they published uh, Cyber Empires in the UK. It was known as Steel Empires yeah. on the Amiga, uh, the Atari. And I don't think they did the PC. I'm not sure because I okay. think we did the PC for North America only. Right. Yeah. Because the Amiga was and the Atari were much bigger. And I started programming when I was doing my undergraduate degree in computer science. And um, I'd started on the Atari back then I was fully, I fully believed that it was the best machine. It was never going to lose. <laughs> um, and I hadn't even seen the Amiga yet, which turned out to be a much better machine than the Atari as far as hardware goes. Um, and so then I, I programmed both of those in assembly language with two other people, um, at the time. And, um, ironically, 
I, I tell a lot of people this and they're very surprised. Um, but that game essentially is total war. Mm. Um, where you build up armies on like a, a, a strategic risk board and then you fight with them real time instead of being 3D like the Total War series is, it was just a 2D map, a top-down uh, game. And it actually, Cyber Empires, believe it or not, won Multiplayer Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World. Nice one. Yeah, but <laughs> this is the funny part. This is the funny part. Um, there was really no internet back then. No, it was so yeah. early. Yeah. So it was a hot seat game. <laughs> yeah. Turn so we're splits. Yes, turn-based. Turn-based. Up to five people, I think, maybe six. Split-screen combat, top-down, uh, total war, essentially. Yeah. And C- Cyber Empires was with mechs, and Fantasy Empires was under the Dungeons & Dragons license, so you had these heroes that would fight with th- thousands of regular troops. So you'd have your regular troops fight, and then you have your heroes fight, but that's essentially what those two games were. Um, and that started the whole company going. Um, so back then, um, I was still a student, and... Uh, I was not even sure if there's a video game industry. Right. And um, so when we got this game published, uh, we did it completely with our own funds. We had no investment, no anything. Uh, worked out of my basement, my my basement in my house. And um, uh, we got it published. And then when we met SSI, they gave us money for two more games. Mm. And then there was like, oh, going to start a company. <laughs> yeah, this is real. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was really great. And, um, I, back then, um, it's funny you look back and how you how you feel back then. I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm old now, <laughs> you know. But back then I was, uh, you know, about 22 or 23, maybe 24. I can't remember. Um, and um, was very excited and was just happy to be creating video games. And I, I still feel that way. I still love video games. But the market has changed so radically uh, since then. And as you know, just relating to Phil's story, often I'll start talking about where I think the industry is going because I think in some ways that excites me just as much as making games. So between those two things mm. um, and looking back on it, uh, I, I still get really excited. But uh, anyway, yeah, so um, getting back on track, cyber and fantasy were um, s- some pretty uh, pretty different games. I, we did a lot of tactical, uh, real-time combat games back then. Um for uh rather than role-playing games yeah uh so anyway and then dark legions came along which um as far as i understand it um it's it was kind of again this a game i did play earlier on from this was archon the dark and Mm -hmm. light or the light and dark which was an ea game which was uh essentially a sort of um a fantasy chess game that came out before EA's uh, battle chess, um, but it was it was chess like rather than actual chess. So you had um, you had a, a checkerboard and but you had f- fantastical creatures like a chimera, and then you would actually go into a sort of action scene, which I suppose was possibly inspired by the famous hollow chess uh, Star Wars sort of idea of actual fighting creatures, um, and that was really cool. And um, it seems that I may have missed out on something that was uh, you know like a spiritual successor in Dark Legions. Is that fair? That that's uh, completely correct. It was a homage in in a sense. Archon was one of my, uh, still is I guess one of my favorite games of all time. Um, I really loved that game, and I, mm. I played the heck out of it when I was uh, in in school. And um, Dark Legions was inspired by a couple things. Um, Archon, um, in, in the sense that 
um, uh, in the sense that you would move uh, move creatures around the board in a in a sort of a chess like environment. But we changed it so it wasn't anything like a chessboard. We actually mm-hmm. created maps and uh, editors, and so you could create your own maps again. Uh, we tried to do multiplayer, but it was just at the beginnings, um, and I think you could play multiplayer uh through the internet but it was it was very um or no at least through a land not through the internet i think that's how we had it land play only right and um then um and it would be it was only a two-player game so it was is sort of similar to archon but what we did that was very different is um pieces had their strategic you could cast spells mm. uh, pieces had both a strategic element on the strategy board when they moved around and also went into real-time combat they also had their own features like one of the things that i remember liking the most is we had this character that was a vampire and every time you killed a piece you would create essentially an undead slave of that piece so um and it was constantly dying though so you had to always continually kill creatures with it so you'd have to go around the board and kill creatures they were an expensive piece but if you played it right you could overwhelm the board with it um um, so those were the kind of things that we did. And the other thing that was kind of a homage to, I was reading, uh, this one book called computers as theater. And I tried to take a theatrical approach to the way we designed that game. Mm. And if you look at, if you just look at some of the screenshots, it's, it is sort of built like a theater stage where there's arches <laughs> and, and it's presented in that yeah. way. And it was kind of a homage to that, even though it's a little bit of a literal homage. Um, that, that was that game, but yeah. Um, and that was the game actually that led us to create blood omen legacy of Cain. And, um, so, and it's, it's a funny story how we got there when we were just finishing off the game, we started creating these player cards and this is way before magic, the gathering. I was going to mention magic, the gathering, as you were talking about uh, dark legions, I was thinking, you know, maybe this game was like 15 years too early or something like that it's funny because we gave away cards like trading cards oh really that yeah that was part of the package it was part of the marketing and so when you bought the game in the box we gave you cards of each of the characters that told a story and a history in the background of them and why they were powerful and and how they got to the zone and the region and 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 all of that stuff and i remember just as we're finishing that game we had so much fun creating these universes and these background stories um, and we started thinking about what are we going to do for our next projects? Um, we had at that point decided that we wanted to move away from the sort of PC, Atari, right. Amiga markets, and we wanted to get into the console markets. And, and so I, for whatever reason, um, not for every reason, I just enjoyed that part so much. I just had a you know meeting with the whole company and said, we're going to start creating role playing games because this is fun. <laughs> yeah and uh you know I, I i wish i could say i did uh, a strategic analysis on, <laughs> on what was the best move and yeah. it's funny because when we created the pitch for kane um and we started pitching it to people one of the first things we were told is okay no one in north america does role-playing games on the console hmm. um you're you're what your main character is a vampire he's a bad guy. No, no, no. People won't like that. <laughs> and we, it was, it was, and, and we were just, um, just believed in so much of what we were doing. And we just hoped that we could come across people who also realized the vision because certainly, um, it was very different. And the other thing about Kane, 
like we just tried to break so many different things with it. The other thing that also we're going to do is take advantage of the current hardware with that the time was the PlayStation one yeah. and the, uh, the CD is that we had, that game had, I don't know if you realize it had no text. There was no, no I did text not in remember that, that. No. No text. And it is the first time, uh, one of the first games that ever used the actor's guild, the voice actor's guild. Right. And, you know, a lot of people recognize a lot of the people from Metal Gear Solid and stuff. We we were actually using those people at the same time. Mm. And so we were one of the first groups to utilize the the voice actors guild to do the voices. And people were just blown away because at that time, most people just used yeah um, people who were developing the game for yeah. voice actors. The T guy, the IT guy, yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. I'm wondering, that makes me curious, because famously on the first release of Metal Gear Solid, um, the Western voice actors uh, went under pseudonyms. Um, it almost, uh, there was some, there was some uh, quibble about using the voice actors guild, or maybe they were ashamed of being on a video game back then, I don't know. Did, did you have similar issues with your voice actors in Blood Omen? No, we didn't. Um, and it's funny because uh, – so I've never heard of that before, which is interesting um, in itself. Um, uh, we used the guild, and I know um, going under pseudonyms, maybe maybe they didn't – maybe they were um, maybe they were under the union um, and didn't do union salaries or didn't follow all the union mm. rules, so they went under that, – that's possible. I don't know the details behind it. I but. think it's out there. I can't remember the, the full details, but I just remember that, um, for instance, um, you know, one of the, the well-known um, uh, Cam Clark – is yep. is one of the characters in well i guess you know a lot of these guys because they re-voiced yep. their parts for twin snakes and of course the twin snakes was the first time i played and a lot of people played the game with the correct voice actor names on because they'd gone under all these kind of you know joe schmo not not exactly but you know john doe type of pseudonyms in the original um playstation release so yeah it's uh, really I, strange well yeah. i worked with cam on eternal darkness too so of course you did of course yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, he's he's a great guy, and yeah, so no, I've never heard of that before. But um, uh, no, so we had no issues. Um, uh, we uh, went full speech. No, no, uh, I guess you know it felt like the future. You had the CD medium. You had all that space yep. to play with. <laughs> it was it was incredible. Actually, we felt we had this massive advantage. Yeah. Um, and you know, back then it was only a CD-ROM, but um, uh, also um, it was also it was also one of the reasons. Th- there's it really changed legacy of Kane in many ways completely uh changed the way that i started thinking about video games and there's so many things about the game uh that hopefully we can we can dive into and talk about mm. um you know what what to me it really it really helped hone what makes a good game from a bad game in my eyes anyway and what we should always strive for as creators and um also, um, we ran into some technical hurdles that I regret still to this day. Um, and one of the one of the reasons why it's tough to be a creative and run your own company. Thus, why I'm the chief creative at um, at uh, Quantum and mm. not the CEO. Right. Um, I can we can go into all that stuff. So, but but let let me let me just dive into those two be, before uh, yeah. before we move on. So yeah, yeah please. Um, so. When I was creating Legacy Kane with the team, uh, there were a lot of things going on in the industry at the time. And uh, at the time, Doom was really 
big. Um, and um, I think it was in, it was either right after the first Doom or in between the first and second Doom. I can't remember. And uh, 3D engines were all the rage. And, of course, Kane was a 2D game. And, and matter of fact, it was the only 2D game to ever be approved to be on the box of the PlayStation 1 because Sony liked it so much. Right. Um, so that was inc- incredible in itself. And, um, but so all of the industry is like, if you're not going 3D, you're dead. And so I did this talk in GDC after Kane was finished, and it was called engagement theory and i if you look on the internet uh, for to human you can actually see a video we did on engagement theory um i can send you the link when, when the when the podcast is over so you, yeah. you can feature it under there so people can watch it. it's only like a five minute video um and i didn't believe that technology was the only answer and so i started looking at all the different genres to see, well, what makes a successful game? And there are all these pundits out there. It's very interesting. And when people in video games at the time, and it's still the case now, but back then it was even more the case where you did video games because you simply love them. Because like when I explained earlier, I had no idea if there was a market. I remember when I graduated, I have, uh, two, I have a master's in computer science, a degree in computer science. And then I, I started my first degree was in, in physical education, actually. Mm. Um, <laughs> And um, I know it's a strange one. I, I was res- I was a varsity wrestler at the local university, which is one of the best universities in Canada to wrestle at. And I, <laughs> I loved wrestling. So that's why I initially went to school. But um, and when I graduated, um, my now wife at the time, fiance, was like, why, why aren't you working at Microsoft or IBM or where, what are you doing starting this game company? And I did it because I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And that's all I wanted to do. And everyone else in the industry is like this. And not only that, they're com- very, very passionate about the way that they feel things are. And I'll be the first to say, hey, these are my ideas, but, you know, <laughs> no one no one really has a formula for things. Um, so there'd be this one group that uh, would say music and sound are everything with video games. And you had the groups like that would create rock band and those kind of things. And there was that whole pile of people that say, no, it's, it's audio, it's sound. Then you have another group that would say, no, 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 it's all artwork. It's all, it's all of this. It's all, that's what it's all about. And it'd be the people back then would be missed. Uh, other people would be, you know, how beautiful is your engine? And then there's still people out that feel that way today that, you know, um, it's how good your game looks. And, and that's, what's really most important about the game. Then there's others, of course, back then that were technology. That was that was the rage at the time. Technology, technology, technology. There are a few of us out there, like myself, that will I think story is really important. And people will be like, pa, story. Yeah. You don't have to tell stories. <laughs> um, and <laughs> uh, still, people feel that way today. Uh, and then there was the new wave back then, which is which I now consider the old wave um, of game designers, and saying, no, 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 it's all about the game design. And so I sat back and I, I looked at everything. I looked at everything and I was like, and then I started uh, comparing things to film. And I realized, to me anyway, that it was none of those. And it really came down to, although gameplay, what was what I would call the central hub and is what makes video games an interactive medium and separates it from the older mediums of film and television where you're allowed to be interactive and you can do nonlinear things and it, it really deepens uh, your level of enjoyment in some ways and allows you to play games for 20, 50 hours at times. Um, it really came down to this one factor, which is called, in, which I call engagement 
And it's a combination of all of those. It's a combination of all of these factors that you can sit there and say, what creates an engaging experience? And um, when I actually did this talk at GDC in 1996, I, I actually said uh, at the time, if you want to be have the best engine, there's only can be one best engine. And I said, you're likely going to lose <laughs> because I doubt you're going to be able to beat it at the time mm. uh, who was you know, creating the Doom engine. And uh, people got so mad at me. I got like super bad reviews. But uh, to me, it's all about engagement. And it's all about uh, when we're creating Eternal Darkness, as an example, we sample people. And one of the tests we do, if you'd lose track of time while you're playing the game, that means you're fully engaged. Mm. And then we started looking at uh, experiments in uh, what's called flow. Uh, which is a huge psychological experiment by a professor, a psychologist called uh, Dr. Zigzent Mahai, who's done all kinds of experiments on what puts people into flow and what gives them the, the ultimate experience of whether they're an athlete or an accountant or a lawyer or a writer or whatever. And so we started looking at that and saying, this is really what makes a game good. It's all about engaging people. So then and by that theory, it really doesn't matter what kind of game it is, how it's based, if you can get that level of engagement. Yeah. And, and that's so at that point, that became clear to me during Kane. Right. And at that point, from that point on, that's all I've thought about is what can I do to make something engaging? And yeah. Fascinating. Did um, when when you came up with the, the the concept the outline for for legacy of kane obviously um the fact that it was it was uh, launched it was a game with already with a with a colon and a subtitle blood omen legacy of kane was this mm -hmm. uh this was already intended to be the start of a saga <laughs> yes and no um so absolutely it was planned out um and there is a story i had basically myself and the team had planned out a whole series of games um, that went well beyond the first one. Uh, really, um, when you think about the first one, uh, Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, for those who haven't played it, it all revolves around writing the Pillars of Nazgoth. We never really explained what they were or why they were there. And that was to be continued and to talk about the universe more and how the world got to be the way it, it was. So, yes. Now, the title itself is kind of funny. Um, that was really uh, a back and forth tugging uh, between marketing and myself mm -hmm. um, and, and the creatives at, at Silicon. And um, so we wanted to call it the first the, the, the working title was the Pillars of Nazgoth. Oh, that was wow. just the working title of the game. And um, but uh, we had sort of leaned towards Legacy of Kane mm. and the marketing department wanted something more more snappy more in your face and so they were like well we want blood omen <laughs> right and it was and kind could... of a gory game you know uh, people, yeah. i remember you know it being singled out for being you know quite violent at the time and because we were still getting used to the new fidelity of playstation graphics it was quite ooh. so you know the, the blood right there in the title um is going to appeal to a certain demographic isn't it yeah I, I, they had a good point and um so <laughs> We agreed to, you know, uh, 
I split the baby as it was, and we just said, okay, well, let's call it Legacy of Cain, or Blood Omen Legacy of Cain. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's how that title came to be what it was. And things started to get confusing with the sequels, which obviously Crystal Dynamics uh, took over. Um, and that's, I'm sure that's a whole big story in itself. Um, one, of the, yeah. uh, one of the various times in history that you've been involved in sort of uh, wranglings, shall we say? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, because uh, I remember being confused because... Blood Omen Legacy of Cain came, came out, did critically and commercially well, I assume. It seemed to. Uh, very well. Yeah. yeah, it did very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the sequel comes along, also critically extremely well-reviewed, different developer, um, but it's called mm-hmm. Legacy of Cain colon Soul Reaver. Uh, so I'm yeah. like, what happened to the whole Blood Omen bit? <laughs> you know? Um, and I know I realized, you know, they took, they took a different, they took things in a different direction, both in terms of gameplay and... Uh, and story to an extent but um i wonder did did you did you play uh soul reaver did you like it and or was it all too much was it was it one of those situations where maybe it was a bitter pill to swallow because you hadn't got to make the game that you wanted to make as a sequel oh no uh so no i did play it and i did like it um and uh so let's see there's there's so much sort of behind this yeah um i think um really you need to understand uh some of the business stuff that was happening in the background um so what was what really uh happened with uh that that title was um back in the day uh we were working with crystal dynamics who was uh who had gotten a ton of venture capital and um wanted to at the time compete against electronic arts which at the time Hey, a lot of people wanted to do that. A lot of people wanted to be Electronic Arts, who were by far the most dominant publisher. Um, and by time Legacy of Kane had done, uh, had, had finished, uh, Crystal Dynamics had run through most of their money um, as a publisher and had not succeeded um, and were transferring themselves into a developer and were looking to be bought. Um, and they were creating a, another game uh, that was called Shifter. Um, mm. and when they, when they looked at, um, uh, creating a new IP, they quickly realized that, um, the legacy Kane was so successful that they rebranded shifter was a completely different game, um, where you shifted between two dimensions, um, um, and started looking at the legacy Kane franchise and then changed it over to that. And so that's why that game is so different from mm, Blood Omen. Mm, mm. And it's, um, I think a lot of people really like that game. And it's certainly yeah. a different direction than where, you know, I would have taken it. Um, and then um, that's, that's why it's almost like you've got this sort of split in the IP yeah. of the Soul Reaver franchise and then the Blood Omen franchise. Yeah. Right. They're almost completely different. And it's because they were different. Yeah. And um, I, at that point, Crystal was bought out by Eidos, um, and now Eidos has been bought out by Square. Um, but you know, so that's how that all happened, and that's why that's why that is is so different and it looks so different. And if you look at the core elements of Blood Omen, um, they're very very different than the, the core elements of Soul Reaver. Absolutely. Which again, again, I, I think Soul Reaver is a great game. Yeah. It's just 
they're just different games. The only th- the I think one of the because uh, uh, as I said, we we quite often get requested to to cover the Soul Reaver series because people do remember it fondly. But I think one of the, the issues playing it now is because um, I you know I have it on PSN um, is the signposting is very much of its time. It's very easy to get very lost in that game, uh, which is you know there's quite often the case, particularly the sort of that era early Polygon stuff. Um, yeah. As you know, and 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 in some ways it's cool because you don't always want that big golden pointy arrow telling you exactly where to go to solve every bit of the game. You know, being allowed to explore is is a cool thing. It's you know, it's interesting. I was just in my head. I was thinking, was your game Legacy of Cain, Blood, you know, Blood the First Blood Omen, was that in a way a kind of you know a Witcher game of its time in in its sort of ambition and scope and things like that? And obviously, you know, the world wasn't built in the same way, but um, it was a it was kind of a brutal darkish fantasy rpg and um yeah yeah well the inspirations i guess the sort of um what's the the creative inspirations for that were many uh we got a little bit of lovecraft in there um yeah a a lot of um uh, uh eternal champion stuff i don't know if you've read any of the eternal champion series um elric um, well, if you look at Kane, um, Elric, if uh, Elric is a really great fantasy series, and he it was written as an antithesis to Conan, right. where Elric is uses magic and and um, rely. He's not necessarily strong like Conan, but he uses his wits and stuff. And 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 when we we sort of looked at those things and and said, well, let's let's do an antihero game where uh, you're you're in this world and. Uh, you hate yourself. The entire world hates you, and you're the only one that can save it. And and I just think that that's a very interesting, you know, um, it's a very interesting position to put the player in. And yeah, absolutely. And and the whole part about I never really thought about it from the Witcher standpoint, but I, I guess it's kind of true from the standpoint of. I was lucky enough to have enough influence over the company as a creative because my role has almost always been creative. Mm. Um, I've written, like, wrote the script for, you know, Legacy of Cain, for To Human, for Eternal Darkness. Um, was also the, you know, sort of lead designer on the, on the gameplay and on all of these things. And when you're running the company, you can have a lot of influence that way. So, um, really the company was always creatively driven and not financially driven because mm. um, we really didn't have a, a financial person sort of sort of looking over and saying, hey, maybe we should do this because, you know, for the long-term outlook. And like I said, when we chose to go into do role-playing games and story-driven games, it's I did it because I wanted to, not because I thought that it was a, a good strategic move. It happened to turn yeah. out that way, but yeah. it was it was really just uh, a passion. And... Um, Legacy of Kane, I think, had about 120 hours of gameplay. Mm. And all we did was we made our own map editor, and we just jammed away, and we just went crazy. We we have a, a level that, um, Avernus, that is a homage to Dante's Inferno, where there's a heaven and hell level. We we just threw everything in we could. We had puzzles that had to do with the night and day because I was the, one of the lead programmers. I think I was the lead programmer at that time. <laughs> um, I did the day-night cycles just for that, and then we put in all these clues that doors would only open during a full moon. Mm-hmm. We had moon cycles in the game, and it was those kind of things. Ambitious that, stuff, really, for the Yeah, the well, it was ambitious, but it was... The only way I can describe it is... You just want to make something that you would love to play yourself. And yeah. I remember sitting back going, man, if we did full 
lunar cycles in this game. Like it's a 2D game, and the but we actually reflect it, yeah. you know, in the lighting and stuff as best we could in a 2D environment. I was just like, man, that would be awesome. And so then I'd sit, sit, go away for the weekend and think about it, and just come in and like stay up for three nights in a row and program that part of the engine. And and then of course because I was running the company, no one would ever question my milestones. <laughs> yeah. And it would it would it would get in there, and then people would be like, "Wow, this game is massive," and um, it it was massive at the time. And we had a you know a pretty small team. I think we finished the game with like twenty people. Uh, it wasn't a lot of people on that game. And um, but yeah, it it was, um, it was really a, a complete you know work of love and when we talk about soul reaver and people getting lost and stuff and i think kane you can sort of see some of it as well yeah i'd say game game design back then was really in its infancy and there weren't a lot of cues on is this level too big or mm -hmm. like kane as far as pacing went we just designed what we wanted we didn't really think about the pacing and how long the game was and i don't know if a 120 hour game would fly these days i'd say it probably wouldn't um i guess maybe if you look at the witcher it could um, but, um, it all depends on what you're trying to hit. And with Soul Reaver back in the day, 3d was totally new. People were just happy to be running around in 3d, never mind, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about whether cues were good or not. So, but I think that's, you know, sort of reflected in both of those games then and, and stuff, but yeah. And this so, was a couple of years before, um, say for instance, Bioware's first Baldur's Gate game. This was before, mm -hmm. um, a couple of years before uh, Zelda had gone into 3D, so we were still in uh, between 2D Zeldas at this point as well. So um, this seemed this also felt like um, obviously you know Western developed RPGs and, and Eastern developed had a very different uh, kind of atmosphere, but th this one was very much obviously you know a a Western developed RPG with the blood and the and the sort of the certain the art style and things like that. Um, and well, I remember well, the interesting. Oh, so the interesting thing on that too is we were told specifically that no one, no Western RPGs can't be made on consoles. No <laughs> right. one's ever done it before. Right. And we we're just like, why, why not? And they're like, just because no one does, they're all from yeah. Japan. And we're like, oh, whatever. Because <laughs> I had played I all the I want to play one, yeah. 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 I played all the Ultimas and I love them. And they were Western. Yeah. Yeah. They were yeah, PC, you know, PC origins, not uh, not console origin games. So, yeah. Sorry so, to interrupt. No, that's fine. Well, um, one of the uh, technical issues that I think it's fair to say you did face was the uh, the slow PlayStation CD loading times. So that, that's <laughs> that's yeah. I'm glad you came back to that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that completely changed. So I felt really bad about. It. And here's here's why I, another. So what happened there is uh, I had. I was a main engine programmer and I was actually working on the code to swap, um, uh, swap the levels over. Mm. And I had to balance between contract negotiations and fixing the loading times. And I had to make a choice and I made the choice to do the contract negotiation because right. I, I actually didn't have a choice. Um, and after that I vowed never to have serious load times in our games again. Wow. Okay. I, I, I just regretted it so much and cause that could have been fixed. It would, like one patch, it would have been these days, of course, but you know, Oh uh, yeah. But, um, there's so, so blaming those load times on the CD ROM would be unfair to okay. Sony. It, it's just it's very honest. Uh, of you. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, if you program it right, yeah, you simply spool and buffer things in the right way where the 
the yeah. user doesn't notice any load times. And, and so that's, that's one, <laughs> Hey, that's one of the reasons why I really zeroed in on your guys' podcasts, because I don't know if you realize how rare it is that people notice that the Valkyries coming down into human is not a load time. Hmm. Um, and you guys pointed that out. Almost everyone universally thinks it's a load time. And right. there's absolutely, even when we're switching environments during interactive cinemas into human, you'll notice there's no load times at all. There's no hesitations anywhere. Wow. It just and that all comes back to your experience on all from Legacy of Kane. All <laughs> Legacy Eternal Darkness. We actually had to put in a quarter second delay in between room switching. Right. Because it was too fast. And <laughs> it was too jarring. So we actually had like a little fade out oh. delay and then fade back in um, because it was too jarring to go so fast. There's absolutely no low times in Eternal Darkness as well. And and it's those kind of things were all back from me feeling so awful <laughs> about the low times in Legacy of Cain. And, and it, it sort of left a permanent scar on me. Because I, I knew there was no good reason besides I was the president of the company and yeah. also the lead programmer, uh, director of the game or whatever. And, um, you know, uh, so yeah. And people, people would have been, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember Nintendo 64's advertising campaign featured, um, you know, it kind of, uh, made derogatory comments about PlayStation loading times and things like that. But actually, you know, when I got my first PlayStation, I didn't care that sometimes the CD was a bit slow on some games because look at the graphics, you know, it just looked and sounded, everything sounded incredible. So I think back in 96, when Legacy of Kane came out, people would have been relatively forgiving. Whereas I think these days, bad loading times can actually kill a game's, um, you know, traction, like because people will just do something else. They'll literally loading times are now the time you pick up your phone or something and you might end up playing pac-man 256 or, or something and you literally stop playing a, a, a like a modern triple yeah. a console game with, with with loading times which in regards to the the notion of engagement that you've talked about dennis could can in some cases just decimate that if if you're being lifted out of that experience yeah. so it's weird looking at um the list of games that that you've I've been involved with creating. I struggled to see, particularly actually from Dark Legions to uh, Blood Omen and then Blood Omen to Eternal Darkness, where the link was and how you got from one to the other. But um, it makes perfect sense hearing you talk about the sort of time you were at in 1996 and everyone was at trying to kind of define what the most important aspect of what's going to make a great video game. Um, it makes perfect sense hearing you explain it. Uh, in that way, sort of the threads that you see coming through and talking about engagement um, that you would focus on in this particular instance, loading times, reducing those, um, because, <coughs> excuse me, as I say, in, in so many other games, uh, as, as Leon's just said, it does become that's your Twitter time when there's a loading screen, yeah. and that immediately takes you completely out yeah. of what experience you're having. And for a game like Eternal Darkness, um, or even Too Human, that could just you know, um, wreck that, the atmosphere that you've created, um, yeah. particularly eternal darkness, obviously. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely agree. And, um, I, it's very, um, the, the, the reasons that you see, um, you see low times today, or it really comes down to a couple issues. One, um, either the engine that people have bought, um, that, uh, they can't do it well or it's not set up to do seamless loading well. 
uh, or two, um, the people who have programmed it um, haven't thought that far ahead mm. um, and have not managed the memory elements. Uh, programming video games, first of all, is very hard, very difficult, but there really is no excuse to have a load time in a game. And there hasn't been, frankly, for a very long time. Right. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, I, I think that it, it does break the experience so much and I felt so awful about it. It just... It was it was like a, a personal next never again will I do this, and um, it's funny too. It's when I would talk and do pitches about these kind of things. I don't know if anyone appreciated it, and you know you, you rarely see when people criticize things. They really rarely will say, "Hey, look, there's no load times in Eternal Darkness." Or like another thing about Eternal Darkness ran at 60 frames per second locked, um, and. Uh, are too human. No one ever mentioned ever. I think that there were no low times, I, I, except mm. for you guys, maybe a <laughs> few others. But you guys weren't. I guess you were reviewing the game, but not really at the time. There was just all the noise about me around that game, rather than uh, you know, rather than what the game actually was. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Just one more question on uh, Blood mm. Omen, really. Um, Sony at this point and and this carried on for a while really were famously um, kind of they were they were pushing the polygon power the the 3D of their console so much that most 2D stuff was getting short shrift famously um, that you know yep. they they put out Rapid Reload aka Gunner's Heaven at launch and that was a cool game that kind of got buried they weren't they didn't really get behind Castlevania Symphony of the Night even though it's a masterpiece of one of the great greatest yeah. games ever made in my opinion. Um, but you said that they actually took Blood Omen under their wing. Did what was the relationship with Sony in terms of you know did did they did they get involved in the development or is it just they give you libraries and you know you get on with it kind of thing? Um. So no, um, it's a little different than that. Um, relationship with Sony was a very strange one. I, I was a a very at the time very naive developer and I was just happy to be making games and, you know, in some sense, happy to be alive and, and, um, you know, just being out there. And at the time, I think running Sony was Phil Harrison, um, who's yes. I think at Microsoft now. Mm. And, um, I would just talk with him and go into Sony cause we'd have to get all kinds of approvals and stuff, but they were very open. Um, at the time I was also working, Mark Cerny was at Crystal Dynamics. Yeah. It's, or, um, so I got to know him. Yeah, I, I like Mark a lot. And so because he spoke fluent Japanese, we had one of the first um, PlayStation dev stations in North America come to Crystal. So I actually moved to uh, and worked at Crystal for months. And I was the only one programming that thing. So mm-hmm. I was just sitting there working on Legacy of Kane. And after a while, people thought I was an employee at Crystal Dynamics. They had no idea that I wasn't. I got to know Mark and stuff. And, and then just through all these times of going to Sony and talking about the system and making sure we're doing things right, you know, I got to know Phil. And for whatever reason, there was no, um, there was no political maneuvering or anything like that. It's just you know when they came to choose games on the box, they were just, we really like this game. Yeah. We really like what you guys are doing with it, and they just put it on, which went against everything else. And, and I think what you have there is someone like Phil who's really behind the development of, of, of solid games, and you've got – and this happens with all hardware manufacturers, to be clear. Uh, not all, but most of them, and I'll, I'll explain the differences. Um, but you really have uh, the marketing department's pushing the idea that uh, this is an excellent 3D. 3D is the new wave. This is the new wave, regardless of what the hardware can do. 
And that's why you got sort of that political push in all those games. Like you talked about uh, Castlevania getting pushed aside. Mm. It was all about how they could project the image of the console. And that's very big money. And people are, you know, get very, very, uh, you know, uh, focused on that. And at times can make mistakes and, you know, move through those things. And I was just lucky enough to bump into the right people and just talk about the game and, tell what we were trying to do and they just really loved it and it went forward um and the reason this happens is there's two ways there's two philosophical ways um generally two camps and one is predominant um one is do you run your company through marketing or do you run your company through development and i think safe to say you know obviously you know silicon knights at the time and uh was driven through development and actually nintendo is another group where primarily they look at what's a good game and they let development drive what they're doing and when they create hardware they're really looking for things to say what can we do to really improve the user experience their hardware's uh, made universally very well uh, they really care about this stuff and when we you know certainly when we became a second party and when they invested in silicon Knights, i got to know those guys really well and that's one of the reasons we lined up so well we're both development driven the majority of companies are actually what's called marketing driven where they, they will spend more money on marketing than development. Mm. And they, the stories that they tell, you know, getting the hype, which is what I like about the way you guys do things. You try to avoid the hype and try to avoid the hyperbole. They use that to drive their market and they will say things that are outrageous. Like the 360, as an example, um, they started going to high def, the hardware, for all of the consoles back then, we're not ready for high def. All of those machines, uh, all of the uh, basically video boards on the previous generation of hardware on the 360, on Sony PlayStation 3, none of them were meant for high def. But one group, I don't know who it was, I can't remember, uh, one group said, hey, we're in high def. Then everyone else said, no, we're in high def. And then suddenly all these are high def machines and they're forcing all the developers to go to high def knowing that there's almost no hope in hell that you can be able to keep 60 frames per second because yeah. of hardware, you have to really, really push. But that's marketing over time. So you, you have these other groups that are pushing marketing, and that's how this that's how these things sort of happen. And um, it's unfortunate, um, but, you know, um, from a developer side and I think from a consumer side, but there's, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, marketing and being successful and, you know, getting successful products out there. I think I always side towards development driven models. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's how that stuff happens. And it is, it, it is what it is, but we got super lucky with Kane. That's all I can say. <laughs> oh, and uh, I, I do just want to say one more thing about Kane. Did you play, because we, we were talking about how the Soul Reaver series span off on its own, but of course, just as you were making Eternal Darkness, uh, Crystal were making Blood Omen 2. Um, which came out in 2002 and, um, you know, purported to be an actual sequel to the game that you'd made um, and even came out on the GameCube as as did Eternal Darkness. Did you ever get to play that one? I played I played a little bit of it, not much. Um, and um, did Amy work on that one? I can't remember. I remember talking to Amy um, when uh, I, I bumped into Amy because we had worked together. I don't know people know this i first i think we were one of amy hennig's uh first game development gigs oh, actually i didn't know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So she came in about halfway, maybe three quarters of the way through the project. Um, very creative, liked her, but she came on as a, I think at first as like a an art producer. All right. Yeah, but then her, you know, we talked a ton about creative and, and we talked a lot. I really like her. Anyway, back once, once after that, when uh, we, we announced Eternal Darkness and we became a second party of Nintendo, I bumped into her and we got a chance to talk a lot. And since that time when I first met her and um, she had really, um, I could tell she developed a lot of her storytelling. I really like her storytelling. Now, I'm not sure if she worked on that one, but I know, mm. um, I, I, I think certainly she did some great stuff at Sony and stuff. And, yeah. um, I remember talking to her about the Kane stuff and, uh, I think she was still at crystal at the time or she might've just moved on. But, um, I think she primarily might've done the story of her stuff. So anyway, why I'm just, I'm trying to remember how I even got onto Amy, but uh, that, that's what I remember the most at that time. I didn't play it that much because I was so busy. Um, you don't you don't often get a chance to do that. Um, you know, I play games as much as I can, yeah. and um, some's for research and some is just to blow some steam off. Um, and I still find myself going back to real time strategy games or turn based strategy games uh, uh, on the on the PC. I'm sort of focusing on right now for me, but um, the the general generally at the time I, I didn't play it that much oh sure so yes you mentioned it um there was a big old gap between uh legacy of kane and eternal darkness from a from our punter you know consumer point of view uh six years mm-hmm. between yeah. silicon knights um branded games and uh, mm-hmm. and in the meantime you became the uh yeah this uh published by nintendo second party um, yep, so yep. how on earth did that come about? Uh, well, long story. Um, but, uh, so, um, at the time, believe it or not, we we're working on two human, which was 2d. And, uh, we were, <laughs> we had this thing that we thought was groundbreaking, um, where you imagine sort of, it would be sort of a three quarter perspective legacy of Kane, uh, uh, environment mm. and then we would seamlessly jump into a cinema so we would have our cinemas match exactly with the static screen and then go into a cinema so there'd be no seams again me trying to remove as many seams as i can so now there was no loading there's no loading into human at this point it was a 2d game and now there was no loading even for the cinemas it would just literally you'd look like you're playing the game then suddenly you'd be in the cinema because the camera would just move down and you'd be in the cinema and uh, that was we were working on that at the time, um, and that's when I bumped into someone from Nintendo, and we got a meeting with Nintendo, and I showed them this technology, and they're like, "Why are you doing this?" Because they they like the technology, mm. but then I explained my sort of whole vision on removing the seams and engagement and where I wanted to go, and they're like, "Huh? Well, we should talk some more." Mm. So then we started working on their prototype hardware, or sorry, their hardware, the N64. Um, and to do a demo to show that we were technically capable. So we did this. And um, uh, so at that point, we did this demo, and I did this one pitch for this game uh, that I can't talk about. But anyway, it was the game <laughs> never came out. Right. And um, we essentially were talking some more, and I, uh, we, we, I was going up to So here's, here's the background on this. Um, so I also at the time... 
the publisher from Two Human uh, went out of business. It was MGM, and they closed. So, so that development had stopped. Yeah. So that was some time taken away there. And then, so I'm going to pitch this game to Nintendo. Um, and of course, uh, being uh, the pragmatic person that I am, uh, Resident Evil 2 came out. Yeah. And I stayed up for three days in a row, and I didn't sleep. And I finished mm. Resident Evil mm. 2. And then I hopped on a plane and went to Seattle. Um, and so I was a, <laughs> I was a basket case. It was funny. And so I get there and I, this producer looks like, why are you so tired? And I'm like, and I just played resident evil too. I love that game. I go, I think that's one of the best games I've ever played. And I said, I love the perspectives of, of, um, I love the perspectives of playing the different characters, seeing the same level through a different perspective. I go, that's gold. That's gold. That is storytelling magic. And, um, he just looked at me and goes, he goes, yeah, I agree. He mm-hmm. goes, we should make a game like that. And I said, huh. I said, what about a Lovecraft game like that? Mm. And he goes, yeah. And so imagine went there with this one pitch, totally changed it all. Pitched. I, I said, okay, give me some time. We talked a bit there. Uh, came up with a pitch for Eternal Darkness where you played 12 people over, you know, 2,000 years pitched it and they just loved it they went wow this is great we're going to do it and it was for the n64 so we worked on that for a long time uh for about a year and a half and then we showed it at e3 and then just as we were going into beta just before alpha uh nintendo made the unilateral decision that they're not making any more games for the n64 yeah and we're like what (laughs) and they they we we had become a second party and they went, yeah, uh, can you start over? <laughs> um, so we literally, the team was really, really upset. And uh, I don't know if anyone remembers games from this era, but we were running in 640 by 480 at the time yeah. without the, the memory card. Yeah. Remember you had to buy that memory? Yeah, the expansion, um, 4 megs pack, yeah, yeah. the jumper yeah, so pack. We were, yeah, we were able to get Eternal Darkness running 640 by 480 mm. without the memory pack which everyone thought was impossible. Yeah. I, apparently a lot of people had done it and it was really hard what we had to do to get that there. And it was, was it smooth real, as well? Uh, it was smooth. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was brutal. It was brutal to get it running. And then after getting all that done and getting almost to beta, um, we, uh, I remember the same producer called me at me, called me at home. I go, dude, what's up? Why are you calling me at home? What's going on? And it just so you understand calling me at home. Cause I work really late. This was like one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, you sitting down? I go, I don't want to sit down. And he's like, Hey, well, we've decided that we're not making any more N64 games. I'm going, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we, you know, the GameCube. I'm like, yeah, of course we've been working on the engine for, for, uh, to human. Because we're going to take Two Human to yeah. the GameCube, uh, and he's like, "Yeah, well, uh, we need to move uh, Eternal Darkness to the GameCube," and I'm like, "Oh, so <laughs> another two years." And so that's why there was all that time in between projects, um, and um, so that that sort of accounts for the whole gap, right? Um, and why there were no titles. Um, but it, you know, in retrospect, it was a great thing to happen. Um, and we had a timed one last thing for the, uh, this will talk about the final, final delay. We were ready to ship eternal darkness for launch on, on the GameCube. Um, everyone was very happy with the game. It was ready to go. And then nine 11 happened and we had a crusader in the game. And at the time, some of the things that were being said 
at the time by President Bush was that there's going to be a new crusade. Mm. There's all kinds of anthrax flying through the mail. The game, Eternal Darkness, literally almost got canceled that week. It's because people thought, because we had chosen the Middle East as one of the areas. Yeah. And um, so I had to fly to Japan and we rewrote one quarter of the story and we make sure we removed any Arabic content that might be offensive. And because we were actually, the Crusader was actually portrayed as a very bad character, yeah. but that didn't matter. <laughs> um, I'm, not a, I'm not a particular fan of the Crusades. I think the Crusades were really uh, not good for anybody, especially the Third Crusade where they sent in all those children. Mm. Um, but um, so that caused another six month delay um, on the game. And not too many people know about that either. But if you look around, people always just like show old screenshots of the crusader from when we showed the N64 version yeah. or even so when we showed the GameCube version of the game and we were playable at E3 a couple times. Um, so yeah, so that's the story of all the delays. It was quite You're a- in sort of in good company in, in the survival horror arena because Capcom's uh, Resident Evil Zero uh, suffered exactly the same fate, didn't it? They, that was going ahead on N64 and ended up becoming a GameCube game after the um, after the amazing Resident Evil remake they did. Yeah, yeah, it, mm. it, 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 uh, very true. And now I know for them that would have been their own decision. Um, oh, okay. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think Nintendo could have told them not to publish it. No, I suppose um, not. But I think I think what happened at the time is they they just looked at the 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 price of goods to manufacture those consoles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, consoles just were yeah. super expensive yeah. Yeah. compared to those CDs. Yeah, and uh, Capcom probably looked, did the same thing and go, yeah, let's move it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but yeah, yeah, absolutely made perfect sense. So yes, Eternal Darkness uh, for uh, Kane and Rince listeners, if they haven't heard before, we covered that uh, game back in uh, Volume 1, Issue 30. I don't believe that. That's like four years ago or something. It doesn't <laughs> seem like that long ago I played it. It's certainly a good three and a half years. Yeah. Ago, so. yeah. so um, first question is again about the title. I'm, I'm always curious about titles. Um, it, or Again, it makes me think, Eternal Darkness, colon, Sanity's Requiem, was this a compromise or was this the start of a, a, a franchise or was it just the way you liked it? <laughs> uh, uh, same, same sort of thing, only this was more about um, making sure... Um, the title, so eternal darkness was the name and, uh, there was a concern that it was too broad a title and there Mm. could be trademark issues and stuff. So this was sort of a back and forth with legal, um, at Nintendo. And we eventually decided that we just put sanity's requiem in there. Um, and, um, that was sort of a homage to, uh, Requiem for a Dream, I guess, mm. which I just finished watching, <laughs> um, which is a great and very frightening movie. Who, it is in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah in a very but real fitting way. because it's um, the again got multiple perspectives in that film as well. So yeah, true. Yeah, yeah it's uh, Rashomon-esque in that in that way. Oh yeah, yeah. He's one of my favorite directors, by the way. I think he's fantastic. One of my <laughs> yeah. favorite uh, movies of all time was one of the ones that he wrote uh, or, or the directed, and it it, it was. Um, no, of course I'm going to blank on the name that I'm on the podcast, but, um, it's, it's one of the, one of his movies where, um, people really hate it. It's not, it's not well Is received. It the Fountain. Uh, I, yes. I loved, loved, loved yeah. that movie. I love that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. We've got a few um, fans of that on the team. Um, well, and, and the wrestler, I, I assume you love the wrestler. Um, oh yeah. Um, yeah. I like all of his stuff, but it's <laughs> my favorite by far. And I, mm. you know, it's funny. I watched it, the fountain, um, because I saw an interview with him. I hadn't seen The Fountain yet, and he said, well, they asked him, what's his favorite movie? He said, The Fountain. 
And and they're like, well, that was one of your worst received movies. I goes, yeah, I want to do it again. <laughs> I just really love the concept, and I was like, I gotta watch this movie. Mm. And so I watched it, and I had to watch it like three or four times before I figured out. At least I, I think I figured out what was going on. I just <laughs> the whole idea is just brilliant with that movie, and I, I really liked it a lot. I thought the storyline was very tight, but it's very difficult to understand. And I understand that his budget got cut in the middle of it, and uh, all the actors pulled out at the fir- at the last minute before. Yeah, it was all shooting. recast and completely changed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and hey, I know what it's like. I know what production problems are like. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just one of my favorite movies of all time. Actually. I love that movie. Well, I don't think we made in in our podcast. I don't think we made the Darren Aronofsky uh, connection. Obviously, we did talk about Lovecraft with Eternal Darkness, and in fact, um, somebody was, was obviously uh, recently been back and listened to that podcast because there was a comment on our blog just this week, um, a friendly but critical comment about our take on the game um, that we sort of misunderstood the. Um, the 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 sort of depth that you'd gone the you know the the creative team to kind of recreate a a Lovecraftian tale in a video game environment and uh, I you know I totally respect that opinion I thought we got that but um but uh, yeah I guess we didn't get it enough and uh, apologies for that but um certainly uh playing it three years ago there was some elements of it it was it was a game if you've listened to the podcast you'll know i know you have listened to it um that i had in my collection for years and years and years and years just never got around to properly playing it for one reason or another um perhaps i was a little bit too scared in some ways and so when i finally did play eternal darkness um some of the you know the ways the way it controlled and the mechanics felt a little bit of their time from 10 years previously and um and you know and as we are i was honest about the barrier that that put up between me and the game but that's to take nothing away from the thing that everybody remembers about eternal darkness which uh, which are the sanity effects and um i think they've been i think they've been copied or not copied since but they've been hugely inspirational um i've mm-hmm. seen think bits of uh that sort of meta and fourth wall breaking stuff in in various other games horror games yes but also other genres um when did it cross your mind to do stuff like you know like the memory card stuff and and things like that was that was that something that you always fancied doing in a game or did it just it seemed like a natural fit hey just before we go on to that point Mm. um I'd like to jump back really quick to the influences because there is an influence to Eternal Darkness that wasn't mentioned that is really bizarre and out there. Uh, Yeah, great. uh, Dennis, I'm sure you'll want to talk about this, is the Babylon 5 influence. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, Thanks, Phil. Um, It's so true. Um, (laughs) um, So back in the day uh, in video games, there's all these schools of thought. You have to understand when you're being creative – there's all these schools of thought that you have to wrestle with, and some people have their opinions on schools of thought when you're making things. At the time, particularly within the world of Nintendo, which is a fine school of thought, don't get me wrong, and it's the majority of film today, and it's the majority of video games today, that when you're creating story, you have two schools. One is character-centered, and then the other one is world-centered. Mm. And so if I was to give you an example of a character center game, Zelda is an example, you know, developing the character of Zelda is very important within the world of Zelda um, uh, and Link and all of those char- like the main character Link is what that game revolves around is, mm. you know, Mario, same thing, right? Very character centric. 
Um, now, also, which is very rare at the time, are world-focused uh, storylines. Lord of the Rings is a good example where they have many cast of characters. It's really about the world, more about the characters themselves, but it's still just as enjoyable in my eyes. And at the time, I was hardcore into this series called Babylon 5, yeah. which was the first <laughs> TV series, as far as I know, that actually would tell us a concrete had a concrete story arc over five years. So it had a five year plan. And I was like, that's the future. I love this stuff. This, and, 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 and that was one of the really big inspirations for eternal darkness was Babylon five mm-hmm. only because when, especially when we were pitching Nintendo, they're like, man, this is too many characters. You, you're never going to be able to develop the characters. And I said, mm-hmm. you're right. We won't be able to develop the characters as much, but what we're really going to develop is the world, which really relates back to the Lovecraft themes that you alluded to, we did a ton of sort of research and development into these worlds. And um, particularly, I don't know if you guys realize it, but when you start the game and you choose one of those artifacts and you actually play the um, antagonist at the beginning, Mm. you get a completely different storyline from one of the ancients, depending on which one you pick. Mm. It's completely different cinemas, different enemy setups. And when you play the game through three times, you get get a special ending. Yeah, we still And Yeah, and that was all about developing the world. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of the big influences that way. So, um, but absolutely, <laughs> Phil's totally right. And Babylon 5, to this day, is still a big inf- inspiration for me. And it's all, uh, even if you look at that, it's got some Lovecraft elements about this ancient evil coming back into the world. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and that's what I love about Lovecraft, really, and you know, cosmic horror is, um, you know, really, if you, look, if, you, if you think about the saying, um, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of themes that we're really focused on in eternal darkness. And we really never tried to say that something was good or evil. Just what there was these things in other dimensions uh, yeah. Yeah. with knowledge well beyond us. And, you know, we created names that were not easy to pronounce, which I think one of the guys commented on. I was laughing. He was like, I don't even know the names anymore. I just stopped <laughs> paying attention to all that. And, and I could see some hardcore love path people really jumping in on that because that's yeah. part of the nuance yeah. of that sort of universe. And, um, you know, uh, we, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and, uh, I love Lovecraft and I was, I was glad that Nintendo was really, uh, brave enough to allow us to go down that road so yeah i mean that was you know uh some time into you know they they'd famously been squeamish about content um in the past and they started to embrace things like survival horror with um with with eternal darkness um was was that something you know did you have to go to japan and have meetings about specific moments of horror or anything like that or is it did they let you get on with it Right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, when we, when we first started talking about the story, they're like, oh, "Everyone's dying in this. This is kind of depressing." And I go, "I know, isn't it awesome?" And, and, then, and then you know, there's a whole um, more schools of thought on, um, you know, what is what is a good movie experience. And when you look at a movie like, say, Seven, which doesn't have a happy ending, or mm-hmm. uh, um, but it's very cathartic. And it's that catharsis where you can have bad things happen that give you memorable experiences that are engaging that really is what it's all about. And that's how I was able to convince them that we were going in the right direction. And, um, and, you know, of course, we had no evidence 
at all. It was all who believes what. And they had the courage to go down that path. And especially just getting back to your sanity effects question. Mm. Um, that was an, another in, in instinctive passion route. So at the time, nothing to do with uh, the development of the game at this point. Um, we were on, uh, I was as well as a, a couple of colleagues and professors from the local university were on the, I believe it was the IGDA uh, Violent Video Game Committee. And we were tasked with looking over the studies to see if there truly was any evidence uh, for uh, violence in video games inciting violence in people. So we went through thousands of studies. We went through a lot of studies. On it. And, you know, um, we looked and looked and looked. And we got back to them and we said, there's no evidence that we can see whatsoever. We've gone through all this stuff. We don't mm -hmm. see anything. And they had other people looking at it as well. They said, we concur. And, I, and they were like, we think it's all political. Um, and at the time, this was all the rage, you know, talking about video games and how they're causing violence. And it was very frustrating because it was video games were getting this extremely bad image for no factual evidence whatsoever. Um, and so they were like, yeah, it's all political. It's going to keep going. And it did keep going for years. And I remember just sitting back and I was like, well, if people are going to blame us for messing with people's heads, then why don't we try to mess with people's heads and see what happens? <laughs> and that was the inspiration for actually going crazy on these insanity effects. And, um, you know, it's very Lovecraftian, of course. Um, and it, it, it all coincided, all, all this sort of the idea of the sanity effects and actually doing this all coincided around the same time that the project was getting approved. And I remember thinking of some of these, like the deleting of the save game, like, these days, it doesn't mean that much because there's autosaves all the time and players generally don't have to worry about that. But back then, yeah. how many saves you could actually have on your memory card on the GameCube was a big deal. That was yeah. a big marketing thing. Mm -hmm. So when we deleted that and like I'm the <laughs> I'm the one that sat back with the designer and we were saying, OK, make that meter go slower, make it go slower. And <laughs> so so you could just see that. And, and if you lost your save game in Eternal Darkness, you had to start from scratch and you didn't want to do that. Um, I remember talking to Mr. Miyamoto and Mr. Awada about it, and they were like, oh, people are going to – people are gonna, could throw their console against the wall. Yeah. Or, Do we have to pay for a new console? And, and I sat there, and I, I looked at them. I said, you know, you're right. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I say, but here's, a, here's what I think. I think if that happens, you know, we take it one step at a time. But I'll tell you one thing. They'll never forget it. Yeah. And I think that was yeah. just enough to get it over the edge to get it approved. Fantastic. And You're right. I yeah. haven't forgot it. And I still hate you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> that and the controller disconnect as well. Oh, yeah. oh that was evil. Yeah, it was, it was quite fun to do those. And we, we did a lot of focus testing on that. And we really did creep a lot of people out, especially with you know, even the volume ones. And at the mm. time, you know, the volume of the television sets all looked the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, use the so, green um, sort of low res kind of overlay type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And we would watch people. Uh, we'd have this super controlled environment. Uh, where one of the one of the one of the John, Dr. John Mitterer is a psychologist, and he would. We actually did real focus tests where we'd have like a controlled environment, and we'd videotape it, and you know we'd people would look around the room when the volume went down, they look around to see who else was in the room. It was, it, it could really creep you out. And even, and it, it's this funny thing because 
Oh, and I'm in my basement sometimes, and, uh, and I, I just replayed Eternal Darkness, so I don't know, about three or four months ago. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it creeped me out, too. I, and I, 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 like, I helped design those. I was like, what? <laughs> but it still gets to you. So there, I think there's this sort of psychological um, – something psychological about it that just really hits home. And, and, um, yeah, they, 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 uh, they, they really, uh, they broke the fourth wall. Well, yeah, the, the, were they, I, I, again, I mean, you, you explained brilliantly the, the, you know, anecdotally convincing, uh, Miyamoto and, and co about, about this. There, there's one which is essentially like, um, a blue screen of death, isn't there? Like, uh, yeah. that's cause a friend was showing me a while ago, um, home, how to homebrew your Wii, you know, which is, uh, you know, so you can play emulators and goodness knows what else on it. And one of the things that he did meant that you got to see like the BIOS screen of the Wii. And I'm just, and it just like, it made my, not, not because I'd seen it before in Eternal Darkness, but just like, I don't like seeing those screens even on a PC. It makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. But to see them on a console, you're just like, no, something's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, yeah. and and again, I just imagine like with, you know, the Nintendo themselves thinking people are just going to like, oh, my, you know, and obviously they only last, you know, a certain amount of time. And yeah. most you would expect most people to wait at least wait for a sec to see if you know things return to normality. But um, I can't. Was there some sort of bogus text on the blue screen of death that kind of implied? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was. It, was it totally made fun of Microsoft. And yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the best story, the best sort of anecdotal story about that is when we went to Microsoft and we were pitching to Human, which which we went forward with. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the meetings, they just said, "Hey, we need to get a few things out of the way." So first of all, your blue, blue screen, your blue uh, screen of death there, screw you. And I was like, <laughs> it's just kind of one of those things. I, was all, I thought it was a good joke, and they're and it was like, okay, let's move on. <laughs> um, they were they were pretty good about it. They were pretty funny. Um, but um, yeah, um, we and actually the amount of time between the flash when it, the the game comes up and says this can't be happening, we yeah. spent a lot of time on that because we. Really, really didn't want people to throw their console against the wall. No, right. Um, uh, so, yeah, that was all really timed out well. And there was a, a lot of the ones we went through. One of the ones, actually, one of my, you know, so I think the deleting of the Sega game, that is my favorite one because I think that's a most nasty. Yeah. My, my second favorite sanity effect is um, the it's a story-based one, um, and it happens over multiple uh, mm-hmm. chapters where at first it's the ghost of Alex's grandfather mm. uh, looking over her shoulder, but he gets kind of creepy. Mm. He's kind of like subtly sort of hit, hitting on her. Ooh. And you're like, well, this is really weird. But then it turns out to be pious. Ah, so yeah. in disguise, I don't know if you guys saw that one. It's in there. It's it rings very about, subtle. As I say, it's been a few years, but I'm interested. You say you've been back recently. Um, and how do, how do you feel about the gameplay, how it holds up and the overall experience? Well, it's, I, I thought that was the, one of the most interesting things about the podcast when I heard it. And what I think your criticisms were very fair and very accurate by today's standards. Mm-hmm. But if you would have played the game when it first came out, yeah, sure. all survival horrors were tank control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the controls of Eternal Darkness were very, very, very far ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so at the time it was groundbreaking. People would say, wow, this game is so smooth. It plays mm. really well. This is, this should be, 
like we would do things with the controller where once you switch screens, we had this, we would have like an analog adjust that would adjust depending on the perspective yeah. of, the, of the camera and things like that. Those were all like groundbreaking. And by today's standards, yes, of course, like not being able to move while you shoot. Um, you know, the sword, I, I think one of you guys commented, your sword actually, if you're in a tight spot and you go to swing your sword, it could hit the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. you know, those are the kind of things. Too that, realistic. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think I think the criticisms are well founded by today's standards, and those are things that you know we certainly would be well beyond. But at the time, yeah. we were just you know going beyond tank control was risky. Yeah, because we'd never done it before, and we we're like we're going to do this we're going to do this new analog type of control this this relative control that no one had ever really seen before, um, and uh, yeah, so so. You know, for the time, I'm super proud of it. But, you know, certainly the game is much older now. It's aged quite a bit. And uh, there would be a ton of improvements moving forward uh, in anything like that kind of similar genre. Yeah. It was probably your best received game critically, I would suggest, looking at, you know, overall <sighs> I think so. It's right it's up there. Hard, hard, hard to tell. Legacy of Kane was out before the days when people save scores. Yeah, true. Uh, Legacy of Kane did super, super well, too. Um, but I think Eternal Darkness was did much better, I'd say. And it was across the board, you know, had a few haters, uh, but not yeah. many. No. We had a few low scores, but most of them were well above 90. So, yeah. And it filled a nice um, sort of gap in the in the in the market in in on that machine. I mean, obviously, though, you know, it had the Resi remake and that was but it was something that perhaps, you know, um, rival machines were starting to get flooded with horror games and um and you know nintendo certainly hadn't published much of that sort of stuff themselves so um they got behind it didn't they? i remember adverts press adverts and yep and, and all that yeah they stuff. Did, did a campaign where people made their own indie horror films right there's a contest with that um yeah, yeah no absolutely i i think i think uh with eternal darkness the toughest thing about eternal darkness was that it was exclusive to the gamecube Mm. And the GameCube just did not perform that well compared no. to the other consoles. No. So despite no. the fact that a lot of the people who had a GameCube actually played Eternal Darkness, it did very well, I would say, penetration-wise. Yeah, sure. It did exceedingly well. Attach rate. But, was good. Yeah, attach rate, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, But um, because the console had not sold that well, the game just uh, didn't didn't do as well as say legacy of Kane because the yeah. the number of consoles out there for that system just were not as high as say the PlayStation one was. Yeah. And I often wondered, um, what was it? The, uh, I, it, I assume it wasn't, but the, a lot of the effects in, in eternal darkness, um, made me think, cause obviously at this point I'd played the original metal gear solid a few years prior and, some of the effects in that made me think of the Psycho Mantis fight in Metal Gear Solid, and then you end up making a remake of Metal Gear Solid. Was that yeah. was there is was, was there any is there any link through there? There's not per se, though. Um, it's a funny story. I, uh, so this, I had no idea we'd be doing Metal Gear uh, until I would say the day before. Right. And um, so what happened was we just finished Eternal Darkness, um, hadn't come out yet. And I remember because it was in the summer and I was actually in Japan on my birthday. Um, that's why I remember this so well. Um, and I was uh, sitting in the Nintendo cafeteria that had just gotten their new building. And uh, Mr. Miyamoto had sat down beside me and we were talking. And then Mr. Iwata comes over and he sits down beside me too. Um, and then 
everyone in the cafeteria looked over and I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> and they're like, so Mr. Mimo was like, so Dennis, you like Metal Gear Solid? I'm like, well, yeah, of course. They're awesome. And, and I'm like, and he goes, so would you like to do a Metal Gear Solid? <laughs> And wow. I looked at him and I said, how is that possible? Yeah, there's this guy like, who makes those games, right? <laughs> well, he, well it's, yeah, exactly. He said, well, you know, Mr. Kojima and I are good friends. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And he goes, yes, we're very good friends. And we've been talking a lot. And he wants to bring a Metal Gear to our Nintendo system. But he's very busy working on Metal Gear 3. Yeah. And I said, well, I know this really good developer who would love to make a Metal Gear Solid game. And I, I said, that's us? And he goes, yes. Wow. He goes, will you do it? I go, if you want us to, sure, we'll do it. And he goes, okay, good, because we're, we're going on the bullet chain tomorrow to Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we went, and we had a meeting with Konami, and, and then uh, the game started. So I went, I went to uh, Nintendo getting ready to ramp up for our next projects and report back to the team um, and came back telling them that we're doing Metal Gear. And so, so you put two they, human and, on hold again, kind of thing. Yes, correct. Right. right. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, the team was just like, what? What's going on? How can we make it? And then so then I took 15 people down and we flew to Tokyo, uh, met uh, Kojima's team. And we talked about what we're going to do, how we're going to combine Metal Gear 1 with Metal Gear 2. Yeah. Um, met uh, Mr. Kitamura, who did all the cinemas. He worked on, he's a great guy. His, his English was flawless, actually. Right. It's funny, we're talking about accents earlier today before the podcast. Mm. He's, he's Japanese, but he's got an Australian accent because he went to school in Australia. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and so we all met and we came up with a game plan. We went back home and we started. Um, and I remember right after that, I had a couple of interviews and people had said, so what's your next game going to be? If you're going to do your next game after Eternal Darkness, what's it going to be like? And I said, I think it'll be a lot like Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> and I just left it there for months. And then finally, finally, like like nine months later or ten months later, whenever the game was actually announced, or it could have been as much as a year, I, I don't know. Um, when, whatever it was at E3, we announced it. Um, and uh, this this one reporter came running up to me goes, oh, you you bastard <laughs> told me you were working i was like you yeah. basically said it hidden in plain sight yeah i yeah. did I, I love doing that where i can it gets Very me appropriate but uh yeah so um so yeah, there wasn't really much tie in there but certainly i think um uh if you want to say who did the real first insanity effects um i guess uh metal gear it came out before eternal darkness i think so yeah um yeah so that that was that was someone who broke the first the 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 the, the fourth wall first yeah. Sure. Well, he was doing it even on the MSX with making you look in the yeah. box at the instruction manual and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, a visionary in that regard. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, what? It would be a, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, please today, do. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a story here that I think is fun that I think Dennis needs to talk about, which is uh, uh, the Silicon Knights guys and the uh, Koji Pro guys playing Counter Strike. Oh, yeah, we used to play right. Counter Strike a lot. We we're big into Counter Strike when it was in beta, and apparently Kojima's team was in in beta as well. And uh, um, so we were going to get a neutral server in Hawaii, but we couldn't find one. So they'd be in Japan playing, and we'd be in uh, you know Canada playing. So we had to get a server on by us. 
And we played like, I think during Christmas, we played like for a whole day, mm. but it was just unfair because our pinks were so much better because the server was closer. Mm. Um, but yeah, we actually played a lot of Counter-Strike with those guys. Those guys loved Counter-Strike. So, and uh, back in the day, um, you know, that was sort of when multiplayer really became the rage finally, when people were starting to become competitive and yeah. it's not like all the leagues are today, but that was quite fun. Yeah, Phil's right. That is, that was something internet could handle it by at that point as well hitting into mm-hmm. good broadband speeds um yeah so i i mean okay i'm gonna i'm gonna ask the question let's clear it up we couldn't find evidence either way but it's often said it's one of those things is it true is it apocryphal can you give us the final answer does kojima hate the twin snakes oh um not that i'm aware of no I, I didn't think so but it's something that comes up from time to time um uh, it not gets that mentioned I've ever heard. I think oh. it, I think it's that it's been said it's kind of officially the Twin Snakes is the non-canon version of Metal Gear Solid or something. So people kind of extrapolate from that that Kojima has you know somehow doesn't have respect for instead it. Instead of yeah, but he you know he's credited as producer on it. How, how much you know how much contact did you have with him throughout the process? Oh, a lot. We talked all the time. He he stayed at Silicon Knights for quite a while. A team of a team of Konami people stayed at Silicon Knights. We stayed at Konami for a while. Um, so, no, there's a lot of contact. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of things done in Twin Snakes that were never done before, introducing first-person view. Yeah. I know I know it gets criticism because some of the bosses are too easy, which is... Yeah, you know, balancing issue. Yeah. yeah, but we did a lot of new things. The cinemas were completely different, and that mm. was... You know, him uh, working with uh, Mr. Kinomura, who's a good friend of his. So yeah. when, when people say he disavows it and stuff, I, I, I you know, um, so I have never heard that. And, and whenever no. I've talked to him, he's never indicated anything like that whatsoever. Um, and you hear these kind of rumors. I've heard so many rumors about things, about different about different things that yeah. uh, that that's that just doesn't seem to be likely. Um, you know, I, I know uh, he's. We, we by doing what we did with the GameCube, it was very much an experiment. Um, you know, when you're combining two different types of gameplay, the gameplay from Metal Gear Solid Two is very different than Metal Gear Solid One. Yeah. So, putting in the gameplay from Metal Gear Solid Two into One required a lot of level redesign um, and a lot of changing things, which was significantly more difficult than we first anticipated. It was really hard and, um, you know, it's not going to come without its bumps. And, uh, but I, I personally am really happy with the game and I, I think he is too. I've, I've never heard anything to the contrary from anyone that I've talked to and who I trust and who knows him well and are from him. So I'm glad uh, to hear it. I, and, I, and I'm sure that's the case. It's just a scurrilous, <laughs> a scurrilous yeah, thing that crops up from time. Rumors to time. like it, it, there's so many, like, there's so many things that you could talk about with rumors and stuff. And, you know, un- unless I see something that's generally verified, you know, through my own eyes and I've direct, I just, just generally like, you know, whatever, you know, but the bottom line is, um, uh, the game was very well received mm. critically and, um, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with it. I'm glad we had a chance to work on it. It was very, it was a great opportunity to work with Kojima son and his team and, yeah. um, see the way that they worked. And, and, you know, um, it was a real one of the first times East truly met West. So, which is a lot of things we're trying to do with quantum as well. Mm. You know, I, and I think, you know, cross cultural pollination is the future of entertainment because the world's getting smaller. It's yeah. getting smaller every day. Mm. And, um, you know, understanding why Japanese video games are the way they are and why North American games are the way they are um, 
really can be enlightening and really can help, I would say, improve your own craft when it comes to creating things. And so it's something I'm always going to continue to try to do and can try to try to continue to evolve into. So I was just uh, really excited about the Twin Snakes when it came out because it was, you know, effectively it was like an HD remaster. It was, you know, b before mm -hmm. that, before that craze that we've got now, obviously it wasn't uh, HD, but it was higher resolution on the GameCube than the, uh, uh, the, the PS1 original, of course, you know, it was nice yep. to, um, we, we went back to the, the PlayStation original for, for our podcast on that game. And it, in a lot of ways, it's still remarkable. Um, but one of the things that has really aged are those PlayStation one graphics. And at least the twin yeah. snakes gives you the chance to play it with that, you know, that next generation level of graphics. Um, yeah, and that, so I think it, that was it, a, it's worth, sorry. it's worth it. The fact that it exists, you know, just, just for that, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the things I, that's, I think that's a very poignant comment is that's back in the day when HD, HD remasterings were actually worth getting. You know, um, there weren't just simply new textures applied and shipping it out with broken gameplay or things mm. that don't quite respond the same because the hardware slightly changed. There we had a very large team working with another team from Konami. Um, so two teams working on this to make it as good as possible where we spent a significant amount of money uh, and development time and effort trying to make this the best it could be where we combined gameplay, all new cinemas, you know, really beefed up the graphics, whatever we could do to make it good, tried new things, experimented. Um, but the, that that is far from, I think, today's standards of, you know, quick remakes where, you know, they're done very quickly. And, and I understand the economics are tough, but... Um, I, that's certainly, uh, I think anyone who wanted to, at the time, get a high res version of Metal Gear, uh, that certainly fit the bill at, mm -hmm. at, you know, way above the bar, I hope. I so. think there's, I think there's some and some, we do, you know, there are some, some, some remakes are better than others. I think, um, yep. you've got the, like Blue Point who, who did Eco and Shadow of the Colossus and they're currently doing Uncharted. They're, 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 they're and they did Metal Gear as well, didn't they? The, um, Metal Gear, uh, two and three collection. I think they, they, um, they operate on a higher level. And the irony is of course, that if they were to now do a, an, an actual downloadable HD remake of the Twin Snakes, I would buy it in a heartbeat. Um, especially given that the GameCube version, uh, at least in this territory, uh, costs an absolute arm and a leg. It's, uh, yeah. I, w I wish I'd never sold my copy because um, <laughs> it's not easy to replace, sadly. I think it's, it's that time where this brings us on to uh, the, the mighty topic that is too human. Now, uh, I, you know, the reason James is here, as well as he's kindly uh, helped me out with the preparation for the show, is that he has played Too Human, and I must admit that I never have. Um, James, you hosted the Too Human podcast. Yeah. Um, you've played it recently. You completed it. Um, yeah, earlier this year. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, yeah, and Dennis, you you were that was the first thing you heard of us, um, and yep. and you wanted to well, just I don't, I don't know if calling it the right to reply is fair enough, but you you wanted to contextualize some of the oh, sort of yeah. the, the stuff that we we had, but I mean, yeah, obviously the the development history of this game, we've already kind of touched upon how storied it was, how long it went on, yeah. Um, so I guess just start off by uh, how did it end up on? 360 under the auspices of Microsoft after you'd been you'd been pals with Sony you've been a second party for Nintendo and you've ended up actually with Microsoft on on the 360 yeah yeah and and don't forget MGM in there as well oh, of course um, yeah <laughs> and it ironically uh 
I came up with the concept for Too Human at the same time as Legacy of Kane, believe it or not. So that's how far back it goes, back 1992. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a lot of people always wonder why Silicon Knights, um, you know, separated from Nintendo. And, it, you know, I've said it several times in interviews. There's not really any secrets and there's no mm. new news here. But every time I say it, people are like, oh, OK, because people at the time, no one believed it. But it was true. Nintendo was moving towards uh, the Wii. Yeah. And party games and, you know, very um, – I don't know if you if you look at some of the press releases at the time, they were looking for very short, um, um, quick, uh, not deep games. Mm. And, you know, we're looking at Two Human and all of our other sort of product slates and games that I'd want to create. And we just – I would continually ask, how do we fit into your world if we want to do RPGs and stuff that kind of don't fit – Mm. with the type of party games that you want to do with the Wii. And we couldn't reconcile it, unfortunately. And so at some point, we, I just said, look, I, I really love you guys, and we all liked working with each other, but we, we had to go our separate ways. And um, again, following my passion, probably you know, not my head. <laughs> Nintendo is a great group to work with. And, yeah. um, and in some sense, uh, I think one of the best groups I've ever worked with, if not the best, um, because they care about their products and um, – they they they're really development driven and there's very few of those groups around these days um but uh so at that point we officially decided to part ways and then we just started reaching out um saying hey we want to do this trilogy it's, it's called too human um and ken lobb who used to be at nintendo of america recently moved to microsoft you know, we pinged each other. I saw him at a conference and I was like, Hey, we're, believe it or not, we're, we're, we're separating from Nintendo. He's like, Oh my God. He was surprised. And I was like, yeah, I'm surprised too. But you know, from a standpoint of, I thought we'd be with him, you know, forever, but the, we is not the way we're going. And he, he, he knew that as well. Of course he, he had been in all the meetings and stuff. And so he just recently moved to Microsoft. I said, would you guys be willing to hear a pitch? And, um, so they said, yep. And we met up and we pitched the story and they loved it. And, Boom, we started. And that's how Two Human uh, went to Microsoft. Now, when we went to Microsoft, though, we changed it, the design, quite a bit. Um, and I think that's where all the elements of Diablo really came into it because multiplayer was a big thing for Microsoft. Uh, you know, Xbox Live was extremely well developed at the time compared to anyone else. Uh, it was way ahead of the curve uh, compared to. I think every other console manufacturer yeah. and um, you know, so I sort of looked at it and I said, well, if we're going to do a, um, a console game, I think Diablo with sort of the loot gathering mechanics really fits well with the type of game that want to create is it's sort of an action role playing game. And, and then I actually developed and created the, pro I'm, I'm the one that designed the, a lot of people, Love it or hate it, I'll take responsibility for it. The control scheme for the combat. Mm. Um, I, I, I sort of created the analogy. When you play Diablo, you click on an enemy and you attack uh, with the mouse. Well, we don't have a mouse, so how do we do that? So, well, we have these twin sticks. So what if we just pointed in the general direction of the enemy and the character would just slide and fly and at attack you or attack that enemy? And then we sort of created this demo and we started getting into ping-ponging back and forth between the enemies. And uh, so that's where that whole system came up. And 
Um, so that's sort of the story in the background of how the game started. And just to add one more thing before I'm just trying to, I'm always trying to go over all the things that you said. Um, <laughs> um, I really, yeah, I really liked what you guys had to say with two human in general. I thought it was very, uh, balanced and fair. And I, I didn't, I'm not, I, I didn't want to come on the podcast to defend myself or anything not like sure. that. Um, but I wanted to. I wanted to just answer all the questions that you guys had. And there was a couple times you guys, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Mm. I wanted to tell you why and, and just sort of give you context for everything that happened. And um, so um, that's why I was excited to come on here because I thought your your discussion on Two Human, I, I, if not the best, is one of the most thoughtful, insightful, uh, critical analysis of the game that where you guys actually really focused on the game. And I, I, I can't say... I, I can only tell you I appreciated it so much that that made me just reach out instantly after I finished listening to the podcast. I literally, as soon as I finished listening to the podcast, I just sent you that uh, Facebook request. And then I told Phil, Phil's like, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, you better listen to these podcasts right now. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he came back. He, he was like, uh, they're actually pretty good. You don't have to worry. Well, I, just, I, I did it. So we're doing <laughs> Yeah. No, but, we're, so, we're incredible. And then I started great. listening to more. Yeah, it was, it was a yeah. Good show, so. got a new listener. It's great. <laughs> got a couple. I, I listened to so, but um, yeah. So um, that's sort of the background on that and how that all started. Yeah, and I think it was interesting. Well, two things were interesting. Um, first of all, that you um, said you tr you looked at Diablo and tried to work out how to fit a control scheme in a console like that because. Um, I seem to remember we talked about very much that thing that it felt like that kind of MMO dungeon crawling. Yep. with a mouse but obviously that's kind of you're pa painting a, a direction onto the screen almost with the uh, with the controller um so yeah it's really interesting to hear that we saw exactly what you were aiming for um did. In, in in the game um and uh the other thing was that um the, the <coughs> excuse me we we certainly did have a couple of um a couple of questions where we were like we're not sure why you've done that, but um, mm -hmm. I, I see again. I seem to remember uh, at the time saying, uh, and and you've you've obviously talked about with some of the other games where there is always a reason why that's the case. That you don't mm -hmm. just throw an idea out or or not follow uh, something through to the way you want it to be for no reason. Um, yep. There's there's obviously going to be either a technical or a uh, some kind of resource constraint on that, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's been really interesting hearing you talk about the, those um, aspects of other games, and therefore it's yeah unsurprising why uh, I think one of the ones we mentioned was the two-player co-op versus four-player, mm -hmm. um, which seemed to be the way the game was designed was for four players, yeah, um, and balanced. And, and, and <laughs> we said in the podcast, Two Human was far from the only game at the time to have to drop back from four-player to two-player co-op or, or the like. Um, there were plenty of games um, doing that at the time because I think, as you've said, Xbox Live seemed to be robust enough and be up to that sort of uh, four-player co-op. But actually, when push came to shove, it just didn't quite come out in the wash. Uh, well, the, so here's... I think you guys will find mm. great interest in this story. And it's one of the things that... <laughs> to this day is still completely perplexing to me personally. And I still have no idea what really went on. So four player co-op for two human was complete. And, um, 
basically, um, I have no idea why it never came out. We did everything we could to get that out. So, and this has to do with a lot of the sort of things. Like, I think just let me just hit a couple things that you guys talked about. The Ooh. balancing of the classes was all based off of four players, not two. That's yeah. why we had like a bioengineer. Um, the length of which time the Valkyrie comes down, as you astutely noticed, that, that was not a load time. There's no loading in the game ever. That was simply time. Yeah, that, that was really clear to me. I've got to say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was meant because if you have three, it's meant that there's a penalty for dying beyond your armor. What's one of the things that I don't know if you guys noticed, that your armor does take damage and eventually you have to repair it. Um, if you die and if you die too many times, you have to leave the level and come back because your armor will get totally obliterated. But that's, that's, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, there's, yeah, there's, I, I didn't notice that. I think maybe just cause I was changing armor so, so frequently that I never came, came across that, but, um, no, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. And so there is a penalty there, but that's a, that, that mm. goes into another topic. So what yeah. happened is the background on this is. I had made an agreement with a producer. I like this producer. He's a great guy. Um, and um, he's basically said, if we don't get under this number of bugs, he's like, promise you'll take four player out and put it down to two players because it'll be easy for us to test. Right. And, and I was like, okay. So four player co-op was completely in and working. And the day came and we had missed the bug count by like 50 bugs. Mm. Okay. Which was so short. But I just kind of looked at it and I went, okay, well, the way it works is we get a free patch. I know that the code's working, and it literally mm -hmm. is a couple line change. Um, and the interface was all done. Everything was done. It was in. I played it for four players for several hours. And up until that point, four-player co-op was being tested all the way uh, on several machines. And we played through the entire game several times. Um, and so we pulled it out. And I thought, okay, well... So then we had to announce, and I said, you know, you know which um, was a real stretch, frankly... Uh, that it was better for the game that we released with two players. Mm. And I had this agreement that if we mm. didn't get out of this sort of bug level, so I, I, I did what I said I was going to do. And mm. um, this producer later got pulled off the project and went to another project, and we got a new producer. And uh, so anyway, we finalized the game, and so we're ready. We're already working on the first patch before the other one's even out the door. And with Microsoft, when you do things, you automatically get a free patch. It's part of their back of the time. I don't yeah. know what it still is. Um, so you get a free patch. And I was like, it's no problem. We're going to do the four-player co-op in then and stuff. And um, something really weird happened. They said they couldn't give us the free patch because they had blown it on someone had done something wrong. And they had to retest it and repatch it. And we lost our free patch. And I was like, <sighs> pardon me? And I was like, we... We want to put in four players. It's like we can't. We you can't get that patch. You you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I was really upset. Um, so anyway, the game yeah. came out, and we were determined that we wanted to bring this four player co op in. So we we're like, we'll pay for it. We'll fund the whole thing. We'll do whatever it takes. We want to get the four player co op in. Microsoft just didn't want to do it, wow. and it was done. Um, it probably would have required two to three days worth of testing. I don't know why. I'm at to this day. Still yeah. completely have no idea, except all that I can tell you is it was in his working, and I played it myself. So did many other people. We got, uh, there was a video mm. somewhere out there of four-player co-ops. I know I sent some screenshots out there, but it played great with four players, and it was completely in and working. So, um, and there was a lot of balancing and a few bugs that were fixed, and and you know better effects were put in, and uh, we actually did slightly reduce the Valkyrie time in that patch as well. 
Um, there were all kinds of things that we did. We had a uh, we had a bank uh, where you could drop off loot and trade with other players. Uh, it was there's there several you could take screenshots of your character um, with some of the things that we had put in, and and you know whether that actually made the patch or went in later with the four player stuff. So, and it's it's weird thing at the time. You, you know, you're partnered with someone. You, you never really want to say anything that could potentially hurt the project or hurt hurt the product. So I couldn't yeah. really say anything. My my tongue was kind of tied. But I, I that was very personally. Um, it, it's very similar to the Legacy of Kane loading screen, where the mm-hmm. four player co op thing, when you know something doesn't have to be the way it is and it still turned out that way and you have no yeah. I, I just have no explanation yeah. um yeah. except it was just totally disappointing and and i'm sure there were reasons somewhere um but none that i could see um you know i, I even flew up there a couple times say look we'll pay for this patch ourselves we don't care we just want to get it out there and they just didn't want to and I wonder if they, it's a marketing thing because you know once they printed all the uh, the inlays for the boxes, obviously they can't guarantee that everyone's going to patch the game. Um, but you're putting in such a fundamental core improvement there that it could cause market confusion or something. I don't know. I'm probably stretching here, but I just I, I don't think so. I, I I don't know. Maybe I I don't know. I you know certainly the patching itself. For people on on the Microsoft system was super simple. You just oh yeah, no, absolutely. Patch or not. Yeah. So yeah, so actually, so four player co op was actually working. All the classes were designed around that, um, mm-hmm. and they all had their different functions. And um, yeah, so very one of the many tragic things that happened with Two Human. Um, but um, you know, and to, so so that that sort of. Uh, that sort of thing to me, uh, that's probably something that will haunt me for. Probably, probably forever. Actually, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and from a standpoint of, I, I really love the potential of that game, and um, it never really was able to reach that potential through all of these mm-hmm. things that seemingly had little to do with the project development itself, and all to do with this noise outside it. And uh, and I think, I think that also really helped. And I, I don't want to think i'm like i'm blowing smoke to you guys now but I, I really do mean that when i listened to the podcast um there were very few people that actually talked about the game and i think the way that you guys do things you you re- remove yourself from all the hyperbole and as i was saying earlier i think a lot of these reviewers are really entertainers and they're not really taking critical analysis on things you, you guys really take a critical analysis on things and that really brought me over here to say hey we can have a real conversation about mm-hmm you know uh the details of the game and and how a lot of the a lot of the things happened the way they happened and um so yeah um so i i like i i'm here because i just really appreciate being here and being able to talk about these kind of things and and yeah so that was the four-player co-op thing uh very very disappointing Mm. i i I really still don't know what happened i don't have insight to all the decisions that happened there. Yeah. All I could say is that we just kept getting a no when we just pushed as hard. Even to the point where, as a developer, saying, we'll pay for absolutely everything. We don't care. We just want to get this yeah. out there. We owe it to the fans. Um, and, um, and, and and don't get me wrong. I, I don't think, I don't know. I'm not saying that there's anything maniacal or anything. I just don't know. I just yeah. don't know to this yeah. day why. Yeah. I don't know a reason why, and I can't understand why. So. If, just imagine hypothetically, um, 
I'm talking here uh, now. Two humans reviews were middling. Shall we? Is it fair to say? Yeah. Generally, by and I large, so. um, I think so. Yeah. There are a couple of there are a couple of higher ones and a couple of really mean ones, but generally, you know, sixes and sevens. If the the game had been delayed a month and you'd finished and got included, you know, you'd got under that bug total and you'd got the four player included. Do you think it would have made a significant difference to the critical response? And do you think it would have made a difference to you know, you were talking about the noise that surrounded it. Do you think that some of that was to do with the fact that you were so personally bitterly disappointed that that became the story rather than the 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 game's pros and cons? I think it probably would have taken, and I think it probably would have it would have been more. It would have needed more than the four player co op, and 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 this would address a lot of the other concerns. Um, I think the lack of a tutorial and and better in-game tutorial as you played the game, better ramping from the first level to the second level. I recently, so we've got a bunch of people on the quantum boards now um, that are you know fans from Too Human and they come over. And so every year uh, in, in, in August, actually, we have a, uh, a launch uh, anniversary and everyone gets on and plays Too Human. And I was just playing it a few months ago. <laughs> and I got a chance to play. I got a chance to think about all your comments and questions about the game. I got a chance to play it myself. And so I would say, I would say we'd need another good six months. And we should have taken the six months. Right. Um, mm. However, um, there was so much. It wasn't our choice. Um, we yeah. were, at this point, funding the entire game on our own. Um, and we were doing that for when we were spending millions of dollars uh, you know, uh, and like there were things that you guys said in the podcast, like I was like, it was there. We just didn't show you well enough, um, yeah. which yeah. which came down to my famous comment that I got obliterated for by the press uh, when I said, if people don't like to human, they just don't get it. And I was super tired. <laughs> and, um, and really, um, that's true to a point because our, I don't think our tutorials were insightful enough. So as an example, if your health is low and you break any of those kind of like barriers and things that you do with your sword and things, you'll get an automatic health up. Yeah, so that was one of the things we specifically talked about was, uh, from for me myself, I it seemed random in terms yeah. of when I got health and didn't, which obviously wasn't the case. I just couldn't work out what right. the trigger was for that. So or yeah, and it's you know. just lack lack of tutorial. Um, and you you uh, and and I I think it is out there in the wikis that there's very little difference between the classes is actually a huge difference um mm. but you just need to understand the the complete depth of how the different characters play like so the champion is actually not balanced he's best at air combat so he can juggle things up and stay in the air the yeah. most he's got the yeah. best hover time uh where the berserker um is by far the best at melee and that's one of my favorite characters um and he it's just you got to be you got to be on your toes so you don't die all the time. Um, but you get him to level 50 and look out, man, he's awesome. The defender never gets knocked down. He's got the best armor. And the bioengineer is uh, often by people said, uh, because it's the healers, it's actually considered one of the best classes if you're into hardcore uh, items and stuff because he can be, if anything, overpowered because uh, it's really hard to kill him. Um, and he can heal other players. And when you do... Uh, when you do uh, uh, ruiners where the animal forms come out if you choose the human tree rather than the cybernetic tree uh, skill tree uh, you can heal people as well with your ruiners so there's all these things that were in there uh, that we just didn't explain well enough and 
I think given uh, six more months, not only with the four-player multiplayer, but uh, I think much better tutorials. I would love to have put in video tutorials, uh, something Ked and Lob and I talked about quite a bit, actually, mm. if we would have had more time putting in video tutorials to show people exactly what to do with the combo system and um, how you can juggle guys up and what's the best way to kill the trolls. And, and it was all... Uh, you know, making the effects different from the the sort of dark alignment uh, enemies to the bright alignment enemies and what the differences mm-hmm. were and all those things, um, it would have been so much better of an experience because the the system, uh, compared to what I see out there these days, is incredibly complicated. And again, it was just sort of legacy of Kane uh, where the president of the company is designing things and going crazy. Um <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, uh, has a lot of pull and the systems that we put in there were incredibly detailed. Um, and, uh, and what was interesting for to human for me is that we're actually able to incorporate very, very, very fast action combining with a Diablo like, uh, background or, uh, I guess base, which you don't really see these days. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, um, I suppose, yeah. No, sorry, James. No, I was just going to very quickly say it's um, it's interesting uh, you say that because generally I'm someone who, in a lot of games, could do with less tutorials, and I'd like to be given the credit to work some things out on my own. But um, I, I think your explanation makes perfect sense because I was trying to work out the systems, but as you say, there's a lot of depth there that even people who have spent a lot of time trying to work out the systems, etc., on wiki pages and stuff like that, yeah. haven't quite got yet. So as much as I was trying to work it out, maybe yeah, a tutorial, just a nudge in the right direction would have uh, would have oh, yeah. maybe helped helped with well, that. So Well I remember I remember during the time when the game was being reviewed and it was, you know, mm. frankly when it came out, one of the worst-reviewed Silicon Knights game in history, frankly. Uh, mm. I was surprised. Mm. Um, but uh, there was a video review out where someone had played the game and they are showing the whole video review. And there, we had icons up when your armor's destroyed. And he kept complaining about dying all the time and his armor was completely destroyed. So he, played, <laughs> he did the entire video with destroyed armor saying that the game was too hard. And I was sitting there looking at it, but your armor's destroyed. Of course yeah. you're going to die all the time. And um, And it's those kind of things that f- for me personally um, really um, really really could have made the game better and that's what I wish it would have done and and you know uh, along along the lines of that too um, I was it, if you remember 2006 to human was you know really criticized by the press you know two years before the game came out and I was yeah. sort of pre gamergate I guess going is this good for the audience? Really, should you be <laughs> criticizing a game before you've yeah. really played it that much or it's not even completed? Is that fair? Mm-hmm. And that started a whole... I had no idea what that was going to start. Um, and uh, really, uh, a lot of... I think it, it really upset a lot of the press. And, you know, I, I went on a, a, a mini podcast talking, trying to explain where I was coming from, saying, oh, it's not good for people. And, and then people started saying, are you saying we should stop doing previews? Um, I remember NJ, uh, NJ Kroll at the time are, um, was saying, yeah, maybe Dennis is right, but a lot of people were just freaking out. And now I think by today's standards, uh, if I'm correct, uh, no one will review <laughs> anything until the game is actually finished, which is what I suggested yeah. so long ago, which I got crucified for. And, um, 
you know, it's just kind of ironic. And uh, it's sort of, I guess it's what I call um, being on the bleeding edge uh, of things. And, and uh, maybe in some sense, might have been better not to say anything at all. Um, but you know, I, I did, I did what I thought was right at the time. And, you know, um, that's the other thing I think with two human too, it was extremely aggressive. Um, the way we did targeting with guns and if you had pistols, you could target two things at once, uh, with that control scheme. Uh, the other thing was the dynamic camera was really, really aggressive and needed more time. Um, I think a lot of people don't like the camera. We probably would have been better off staying with a sort of a rail camera or pre-programmed cameras or even a static top-down camera for it to play like Diablo um, uh, than put that in because it really did bother a lot of people. Um, and all of the things like running at 60 frames per second, absolutely no load times. It's like if you're playing the uh, – I'm extremely proud of this. If you're playing um, – the single-player campaign at the start when you go to the first level, when you jump to Heimdall's office and back, those levels mm. are massive. They're, and there's yeah. no low times at all. There's not even a glitch. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, but at the time, no one commented on that. There was no single reviewer that said, wow, technically this is pretty impressive. Uh, no one said a thing. No one bothered to mention it. Uh, everyone thought the Valkyrie times were low times, and they weren't. And we were just like, well... And, and, and at that point, um, it didn't matter what I had said at that, at, at that point. It was the, the review, I think, at Human was more about Dennis Dyack and mm. what I had said about the press and the public and things that I had done rather than the game. And it reflected, unfortunately. There are some reviews that you know I still look at, and they make absolutely no sense to me. Like Some that are so low, it's like the game didn't even work. And it's like, come on. you know. But people were just so angry. You know? Yeah. Do you think, um, playing devil's advocate slightly, um, mm. as somebody who hasn't actually played too human, do you think some people would view it that, you know, after the game had famously been in and out of development for such a long period of time, do you think sort of technical excellence was like the minimum they expected? Now, I know from all my gaming and research and reading and writing that actually oftentimes the longer something's development, the more troubled it can be technically because... Like you, like you were talking about Eternal Darkness, you know, suddenly taking something from one generation of platform with a cart on a cartridge and then putting it onto the next generation on a disc is not just a case of, you know, you can't just dump the code, especially not with proprietary systems like those. Um, I just wonder if people were harsher on Too Human because obviously, you know, you've you've admitted that there were things that you could have done more or better oh, to, to make it a, sure. a more fun, easier to enjoy game, uh -huh. but. Yeah, maybe maybe it's it's gestation actually caused people to expect more than it was ever likely to deliver or something like that. Well, it's it's funny. Um so certainly um I did I did some things that probably aggravated that situation and we'll return to those, but uh come let's come back to that thought. But so to answer your question, um I, I, I don't I don't I don't think that that's a fair perspective only from this point of view. And, and this is how I feel about all entertainment in general. Um, talking about the development process of a game or, you know, production problems or all these kind of things. Uh, I, World War Z comes to mind how it was supposed to be the most spectacular bomb in all history. And it wasn't uh, because of all the production problems that they have and all the reshootings or blah, 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 whatever theoretically was supposed to happen. Or you hear about most recently, 
that was just a couple days ago, all this anonymous employee criticism about Star Citizen. Um, and to me, there's really the fundamental problem that I have with, I guess, games criticism is when it strays from criticizing the actual product to criticizing things around the product. And in Safe for Two Human, I think that maybe that was me or things that I said that upset people. Or B, uh, you know, talking about development hiccups or reshoots or something like that. At the end of the day, in my opinion, I think that it is on, if you're going to be a games critic, criticize the medium. Don't criticize the noise around the medium because you're doing a disservice to your fans. As much as you think you may have insight to something of X or Y, um, as someone who's inside the games industry, talking to people uh, generally in the press who believe that they're well-informed or even industry insider press, people who spend, that's all they do. Until you actually make a game, you, it's, you, it's stunning. And I think you guys have incredible insight into these things compared to most groups. Um, but it's just, it's not fair to the audience because I don't think it's a, so my opinion is it's not a fair criticism. Um, now just getting back to, uh, the other point where I said, you know, maybe I did some things. I, I think, um, <laughs> this was more of an, uh, this was back in the days of NeoGAF. Have you guys heard of the foreign against thing? Did you guys ever hear about this? I know NeoGAF. Um, what's, no, I don't think I know this specifically the for and against them. Oh, this is this was Phil. You, Phil, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, I certainly do. This is going to be common <laughs> gold, I'm sure. Uh, well, okay. Actually, so we even go. I, I'd like to. I'd like to say one thing before we get too far into that. Mm. And uh, uh, you know, knowing Dennis as I do, and uh, also being of a similar mindset as far as geeking out on the possibilities of the future and trending patterns as to where things could go. One of the things that, that, unfortunately, you'll probably notice talking to Dennis is he's incredibly passionate. And uh, there's, been, there's been multiple instances back in, in, in that era, around 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, where Dennis has spoken about like, the future of things. And I think the problem, the problem that's come up is not, not whether he's right or wrong, which, as it turns out, mostly it seems he's right. But it's more about people aren't ready to hear the the uh what that could end up being i guess mm. like a good example is uh talking about the one console future mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. cloud gaming and how platform's not going to be the deciding factor at some point it angers people because people are invested in the console wars they want to believe yeah. that their company is still going to do well and be the top dog and all of those things but we're starting to see those trends coming in now but back in 2007 i think something like that when Dennis was talking about these things, it just enraged people. And I think it was a misjudgment that he didn't realize that it would do, do that for one. Um, but also that, um, that it can actually impact how the games are perceived as well. Like mm. it can actually bleed into the development of, of, of the games and also the reception of the games. So I, that's one thing I'd like to put out there is just basically... I think it all comes from the right place. And if you go back and you listen to things he said from the frame of you know, 2015 and look back at it, you can now see a lot of these things as being, oh, yeah, well, we can totally see the cloud gaming thing is going to happen. And, of course, at some point, the hardware is going to become less and less relevant. It makes sense. 
But when you when you mix that in at the current time, where there's you know huge console war stuff going on in the fan communities, it's easy to see why these things get these things get yeah. inflamed. So anyway, no, um, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I mean, yes, from our point of view, from my point of view, as I say, Kane and Rince is a sort of reflection of how me and my you know colleagues um, view the industry. Is if uh, a if an industry figure who made games was coming out and saying you know outrageous political things about you know the world about you know if they were say if they were being misogynistic or 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 something like that then I we you know we would talk about how that might affect our um, perception of their games but to talk about what might happen to consoles or you know stuff stuff like that it's just that's surely just part of part of a technological industry is you're talking about that of course it changes you know of course of course things move on it's not like um it's not like it hasn't happened before i mean yeah i just you know another of the founding tenets of cane and rinse is that we are completely format agnostic like the game is is king formats formats are fun you know we 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 enjoy using different ones we might have a favorite controller we might have a favorite interface but ultimately we all have all the consoles pretty much because that's the only way you get to play all the games. That's, that's, that's what it boils down to. Absolutely. So to fight about that is, I mean, I just, it's just so small minded, um, you know, fanboyism and all that sort of thing. And if, if saying anything uh, against that enrages people, then, um, well, yeah, I mean, they, 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 yeah, well, I, I don't go on NeoGAF myself, but well, it, yeah, I, <laughs> well, you know, it's, so let me, let me explain now. Th- and thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your your comments and um, and Phil. Thanks for that interjection because yeah, I think it's going to help a lot. Just before you do, I've got one little piece I'd love to say. If that's oh, okay. throw it out there. <laughs> okay. So I the, the other caveat with this is is again knowing Dennis and also you've got to consider where he's coming from as, as well as as somebody who's running a company heavily involved in the industry and creative. So that's that's you've got to frame those things first before you look at why he's saying these things. Of course, at that point, as somebody who's running a company, you're you're looking at where the future is, and that's what he's talking about. He's trying to map out yep. where things are going to go, right? That's hugely relevant to, to games design. And 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 to Phil's point, and and I think if you you can go back, it's all out there. As far as I know, it's still all out there. Um, people literally did not like what I was saying. And, and so just as you were saying that you think it's, I, I thought also I was really surprised on the reaction, but what I did. So as an example, I talked about many things, but I talked about really the efficacy and I didn't say it this way, but that's really what I was saying. And it's why it enraged so much of the press, the efficacy of reviewing things before they were finished. I said, is this, good for anybody, which was really saying this is unethical. And then you, if you listen to some of the podcasts, people are saying, or you look at some of the views, Dennis Dyack is saying, I should be out of a job, says game previewer. That's all this person did was previews of games. And B, um, they also, a bunch of press outlets started saying that I was unhinged, literally, like insane. And they said it over and over again. And they continued to say it to the point where even Microsoft got involved and said, you guys need to stop saying this. It's not true. It's, you know, I'm close to true. And when I said that when I back in 2006 and 2007, when I started talking about cloud computing in a one console future, they really started saying Dennis is nuts. He has no <laughs> idea what he's talking about. And meanwhile, you know, 
uh, I remember the one time I wrote a paper, one, one, a two-pager thing on my thoughts on cloud computing, and I sent it to gamesindustry.biz because he said, you, you still are into this cloud thing? Um, and I said, yeah. And I talked to him about it, and he goes, well, you want to write an article? I said, sure. Then the next two days after that, which I had no idea of, they announced the first gaming cloud platform, um, which is now since gone, but now Sony's big into their clouds and stuff. And clouds are yeah. absolutely the future. And I just looked at the trends of technology over time and commoditization. Um, and I did several talks on this. And these are sort of very macroeconomic terms uh, that I get really excited about. And I remember being in some interviews and some press where they were literally just making fun of me just and, and saying that I was crazy. And I was like, oh, then another thing I did, and this, this goes on NeoGAF, um, and this has to do with another ethic, efficacy thing and really talks about reciprocity. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the press at the time, and I didn't realize this until later, uh, are on NeoGAF, and they get a lot of their impressions, or at the time certainly got their impressions from NeoGAF. And there's a lot of people who are anonymous, and... Um, a lot of people in general, and this is just my view on technology, a lot of people in general uh, believe uh, that technology is empowering and imp improves our communication. A lot of this, and by the way, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here, so uh, great, great thinkers like Ursula Franklin uh, and other people who are uh, really uh, into society and technology have written a lot about mm -hmm. these things and technopoly, and there's a lot of, lot of stuff out there. Um, but that's actually fundamentally not true. What technology has done, rather than prove the amount of communication we have, it's actually improved, increased the number of ways which we can communicate, but it's actually, through these different ways of communication, has narrowed the bandwidth of communication. So as an example, uh, we're often, uh, society before computers, all communication was essentially done face-to-face. You know, with, with before say 100 years, 120 years before, so it's basically face-to-face -face communication. Um, and with face-to-face -face communication, you have this this concept called reciprocity, where you can see my emotions, you can see uh, what I'm doing. If I text you a message that's all in caps and the caps lock gets stuck, you think I'm yelling at you, and that's because the bandwidth of communication is greatly reduced. And also the reciprocity of if if I was to say your mama. Like if, say, we're playing a board game or something and say, I'm going to kill your whole family. I would never do that if we're playing a board game where I'm sitting across the table. But if you're on Xbox Live, it happens like every minute. Or if, especially if you're playing League of Legends, it's not only your whole family going to come over and nuke the whole country. And, you know, so and what reason why that is, is because there's a lack of reciprocity because the person on the other end who's making these threats knows that you can't come into his 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 place where he's playing and and actually act upon that. So so technology reduces this level of reciprocity. So anyway, on NeoGAF, everyone's gonna, is saying that for, I don't know how long, that two humans is going to fail. Two humans is going to fail. Two humans is going to fail. Two humans is my baby. So I am, Phil's right, I'm very passionate. So I sit back and I, I have all these things in my head and I'm like, huh, well let's do, let me, let me push this level of rest and try to explain Rather than I have tried to explain reciprocity in many other interviews in which some of the press would just call me crazy and move on, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. So I put, put this post on NeoGAF and I say, for all those people who think that two humans are going to fail, post against. And for all those people who think that two humans are going to succeed, 
push for. But there's going to be some things to this. And the thing is, I will agree. I think two humans are going to be successful, so I'm for. And what I am going to do is I will agree upon some meta score out there. This is before the game is out. Some meta score that I think two humans will be above a certain level. Anyone who wants to say what that level is, and we had to agree upon a level, um, say 80% or 75% Metacritic, whatever, the demon of success. For all those people, if it gets above the 75 and it is a success, all those people need to put under their tag owned by Dennis Dyack. And if I lose and it goes below the Metacritic of whatever number we decide, I'll put under my tag owned by NeoGath. And that started this for and against thing that exploded within, I think within an hour um, uh, that was 20 pages. I can't remember what. Um, and I was in the middle of business meetings while I was doing this. So I had kind of done it and I hadn't really thought about that. Like I did, it was like, it was, I thought, okay, this is, this is this is kind of fun, and we'll see. But what it really did, it test because well, I was trying to make two points. The first point is anonymity and all this all this stuff about putting your money where you all these people are anonymous and they have all these tags. But the one thing they cared about on NeoGAF, let's do something that they. I wanted to ramp up the reciprocity, so I wanted to have it cost them something that they they would never. On NeoGAF, what's what's under your tagline is very important to the people on NeoGAF, or at least it was at the time. Mm-hmm. So that would be an actual loss for them. No one took me up on it. No one wanted to. They're back and forth. No one would agree upon what a good game was, right? So that was that was a whole mess in itself. Mm. But then eventually Microsoft got involved and got them to shut shut the thread down because it had gotten so out of control. It was one of the most f- fun threads I've ever seen. But that really also started – I wanted people to start questioning, why are you reviewing a game before it's out? And then I also – wanted people to start asking why do you want a game to fail why would you ever want a game to fail yeah. and and so these are the kind of things that i i tried to ask and um the press didn't seem to like this either and it really resonated with them and i think in i think it affected a lot of the reviews and um a lot of the things that i did at the time uh talking about the future of the industry and where i think the industry should go um had some really tough messages of, you know, um, the hardware's less important than what you think. And over time, without exception, all hardware becomes commoditized to nothing. If you look at your cell phone, when cell phones first came out, they can only do a few things. And I would say things like, the more things that your piece of technology can do, like a cell phone now can text, watch video, your iPhone can play music, blah, 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 everything. The more that it does, the less it's worth. The more features it does, uh, commoditization will make it its value inversely proportional to the number of features that it does. So as I said, if you look at a console, it's the same thing. The more that your console does, the less it's going to be worth. And if you project that over time, without an exception, with any technology, it doesn't matter what the technology is, it's going to commoditize its way to zero and eventually it's going to be given away for free or be nothing. Mm. And that message, I have never received so much hate from that message. And back in 2007, no one was talking about these things. People were, you know, I think there's in the middle of, you know, the 360 and the PS3 and people were, couldn't wait for the next hardware generation. Now I think, I, I even think Michael Pachter 
recently said that he thinks this is probably the last generation of consoles. And it's all coming down to a service now. And whether Microsoft goes to the cloud or if you, I think Netflix or Amazon, they're going to start releasing systems. If you look at Steam, it's all moving towards the cloud. And, and, that's, and that's good for everyone. And it's, it's also good. There's also other reasons for all this cloud technology and what people don't understand uh, because they haven't had the insight is it also comes down to copyright law and financing. Um, China doesn't have copyright laws. People don't. It's just culturally not really accepted. And if they if they do have copyright laws, that's why you have free games in China because no one will pay for them. But we, that's where the microtransaction model came from, where you log into a cloud essentially, and people pay through microtransactions. That has now driven the entire mobile market, which is now overtaking the console market, and. That is something for the future, and that is why Microsoft is working so hard on clouds, and why Sony's working on so clouds because so hard on clouds because no one anymore wants to sell you a piece of software for fifty dollars. They would rather move towards a service where you pay and renew things uh, like Adobe, like the Adobe Photoshop suite, where you don't even buy Photoshop anymore. You just subscribe to the cloud and you pay constantly because that's what's called renewing revenue. And you don't the way games used to be. And they still are on the AAA space, but it's going to go away very quickly over the next few years. Is you buy, pay for a game, pay fifty dollars or eighty dollars or whatever they're costing these days, how many pounds it is, and you make most of your money in the next six months. What they'd rather do is get you set up on some kind of recurring revenue basis, where there's not necessarily a big upfront buy, where they can get commodity commoditized like a commodity does, and it turns more into a service. And these were the things that I said back in two thousand seven, and these were the messages that, um, despite how often I tried and how many times I spoke about, I must have spoke about one console future and uh, cloud computing seven or eight times back in 2007. And it got me no love. That's for sure. <laughs> you think people, it's ultimately that people are, it's a, it's, it's partly that people have this need to attach themselves to tribes. Um, I was talking earlier, I, I fluffed my initial intro because I've got a hoarse voice from shouting at football today. Now that's that's something where I I'm you know I'm very I've, I've been long aware of the sort of absurdity of it, but the tribalism there makes sense because it's my hometown, it's my hometown club. When it's a box of wires and circuits and electronics that's made by an American or a Japanese company put together in China or wherever, I don't feel um like i have a you know i don't wear the shirt of that of that console i i buy them all i use them all i use you know i don't i don't i don't make a favorite but a lot of people you know it's something we come up against in one of the things when we try to manage our community and so far it's going really well probably because it's still pretty small but we we basically would operate a zero tolerance policy on you know idiotic fanboyism on our on our forum um but i think you know if if you've gone out there and you've basically said you've like said there is there's no father christmas or your mum's going to die one day or you know something like that so these people who have this you know they have their sony badge or their microsoft badge elevated to this ridiculous status in their lives and saying something that threatens that and people don't like yeah. change as well, and, and um, you know that's yeah, a related. I think that's what <clears throat> that's what struck me was it. There may be an aspect of tribalism, but um, people create for themselves, 
ever-decreasing circles of self-interest and draw lines wherever it may be, be that, um, you know, just looking after themselves or their family or, you know, their local area or their country or whatever it might be. There's there's biological reasons for those yeah. inherent biases in, in their lives. Um, but what people, even beyond all that, take away tribalism almost, if if you say to them uh you enjoy paying for your games 50 60 dollars at a time and you get to play this game and that's going to change without actually seeing that change and, and as dennis has said seeing move over to subscription models for a lot of games or microtransactions for for mobile uh, games and social games and that kind of thing um, without actually seeing that through, what it sounds like you're saying to someone is your hobby is not going to be here in five years. Mm-hmm. And and it's not just a hobby to a lot of people. It isn't to me. It's, no, it's a, a massive source of enjoyment in my life. And what it sounds like, again, w- without <coughs> actually seeing it through is, but it could sound like some people what you're saying is, um, I know you like this, but Almost, I am going to take it away from you because I'm telling you it's not going to be here in five years, yeah. or, or it, it may change. Is what you're actually saying. But um, then the only person you have to sort of vent that frustration at isn't the executives at Microsoft or Sony or Facebook or whoever coming up with new uh, payment models and uh, new ways of delivering uh, video games to you. Uh, it's the person who said it. Uh, yeah. it. It is literally shooting the messenger in 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 many ways. No, <laughs> excuse I, I, me, in many ways. Yeah, I think that's true, and and I often I often would describe the console wars as being very religious um, in in a sense because people will pay for the console, which can be you know a lot of the marketing is you know you, you're going to spend a thousand dollars on this system and it's going to be worth it and you're going to love it, and so people need to rationalize and justify that, and in a sense if it, if it becomes like a religion and very passionate, I, what I really went out there and said I guess is your God is dead. Um, are going to die, and um, which wasn't. I, I tried to say many times that Sony, it's going to be reborn. Now. Like yeah, they're all they're all going to go to the cloud. I'm not saying that the companies are going away, but what I am saying is that the way that people do business is has to change, and the economics are, is are unavoidable. These things that, like you look at as an example, the AAA model. Uh, the way I like to describe the AAA model is. AAA models are like AAA games, the games that I used to make and the games that uh, a lot of people are still making. It's like building battleships before World War II. And once World War II started and that one torpedo bomber, you know, took out the Bismarck, people need to look at, they just looked at the war and the, the whole way in which things were done radically changed. And you have... Uh, mobile games right now i think it's i think it's uh clash of clans makes something like 1.3 million dollars per day mm. and it was done with not that many people it definitely not a triple a budget um and that is changing things whether we like it or not and my i guess if i was to go back in time and change things it's almost like i wish i would have watched more star trek <laughs> and followed the prime directive. And what I mean by that, and I, I don't mean to come across as arrogant or anything, but I had, because I'm in the industry, because because I've got a lot of background in computer science, because I talk to a lot of people 
who care about the direction of not only the games division of where their company's going, like Microsoft and all of these things. And I get a chance to talk to people who run very large companies and talk about clouds and things. I have much more insight into things. And I was, I, I wish I would have softened the message. Um, I don't think the message was wrong in, in the sense of all the things that I said, but I think I could have said it in a better way. Um, <laughs> for the most part, having people just be nicer uh, and not react so um uh, negatively, I, I guess that's the best way I would describe it. But also, um, I think I think you're right. I, I think people did feel that I was trying to take something away, and that was never ever my intention. I love video games. It's it's all I've, I've de- devoted my mm-hmm. life to it. I don't have any children. All my my children are my cats, and you know my dogs. If I ever get a dog again, and my video games. That's it. That's all I have. And um, you know, I I love this industry to death, and I I feel that I work for gamers. Like, uh, that's the only reason. Like, the customers always right in the end. So, when you take that philosophy and you just position it with some of the things I said in the past, I wish, I wish I would have introduced things more softly or or talked about them in a more digestible way. Um, and I was so I remember when I did the the one console future talk, I was so. It, to me, it was very important not to talk about fluff. So I talked about, you know, macroeconomics and commoditization and trends in technology. And I had all kinds of illustrations of cameras and cars and telephones and all the things that got commoditized over time. I was wanted to make sure that that argument was so accurate and so well grounded with, uh, you know, examples and research and that I missed that that message was so compli- complicated uh, from the standpoint of that any press writing about it's never going to be able to capture what I'm talking about in a single headline. And um, and that sort of, in some sense, you know, with the clickbait articles at the same time, really got people enraged. And um, so, you know, and I think pulling this all back into Too Human, all that stuff got reflected in, in my eyes into Too Human. And uh, as much as I tried, I, I couldn't pull it away from that. Uh, if you read some of the reviews, they talk about the development process or they talk about things that they shouldn't talk about. As far as I'm concerned, relative to the game, and the game was deep enough that some people didn't spend time on it and you know, their made, minds were made up before you know, they read it and things like that. It's just all of those things. Like, uh, you know, From a standpoint of someone who loves their game, and you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased and stuff, but I think if anything, Too Human was really more of a criticism of Dennis Dyack, unfortunately, than it was of the game Too Human. And I think that was just a disservice to the fans. Um, and uh, if anything, I wish I could have done better. Um, um, <laughs> but we are where we are. <laughs> you still want to make the sequels? Or yeah, for something? sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think um, I think it would require a complete reboot. And, you know, I've already talked about some of the things that I would improve. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's one of the funny things, too. A lot of people think Two Human failed. It, it actually didn't. It actually did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, it sold well. Um, and it was one of the best-selling games for Microsoft that year. Um, it, it certainly didn't lose money. Um, and um, that was despite the fact that it was way over budget and it took a lot longer than we'd hoped and it run into all the production problems that are famous these days. But, um, at the end of the day, um, 
it got this. I remember trying to go on Wikipedia when someone said it sold 125,000 units, mm. and um, I well, no, it sold more than that. Mm. I know. I'm Dennis Dyack, and people go, no, you're not, and they change it. No, you're not. Need a, I said, well, it sold this many units. They go, you need a quote. So I got so frustrated, I called up some way, hey, can we do an interview about T-Human? And they said, sure. So then I did an interview, and I said, hey, it sold this many units. So after the interview got published, I then referenced that interview and put it <laughs> in the Wikipedia, which later got removed anyway. It got removed again anyway by someone else. But it's just one of those things that – you know, you just can't, you, you can't, you can't fight these things. It's more yeah. about, it was more about the noise than it was about the game, which is unfortunate. And that's mm-hmm. again, why I really loved you guys podcast. Cause you really only talked about the game. Like, why did this happen? And why that? And I was like, Oh, I, I like, I can't remember every single question you guys had, but I remember just sitting there going, Oh, I could tell you the answer to that. I could tell you the answer <laughs> to that. And, uh, and I thought some of the criticisms were really good too. And, and I, like I said, I, I think, um, more than anything, uh, more time on that product would have been uh, would have been golden. Um, but we've spent a lot of time on it already. But even more time because it was very ambitious, and uh, I think for its yeah. time, yeah. It, it did a lot of good stuff. So, it's I'd just like to go back to Wikipedia for a mm-hmm. second, which is the bane <laughs> of my existence. I, I will say oh. that there is like a Dennis Dyack hit squad that hit up on Wikipedia, and uh, it's amazing the things they do. Like for example, they remove. Uh, his computer science degrees and leave only the phys ed one as, oh. a, as an example. <laughs> it's just like so some of the weird things that they do to try and make it look as if Dennis either isn't qualified or some whatever kind of fraud, it may be. Yeah. Or crack it's, uh, yeah. so, you know, Every now and again, I'll check on the Wikipedia page and have a giggle at what they've done this time. But it's just like, man, there's so many inaccuracies. It's insane. <laughs> well, and, and it's funny because when we do spend the time to try to, I just gave up on that. I guess around last year mm-hmm. or year two years ago, uh, I, I I just sort of it's just so strange um, because in my eyes um, I'm very passionate, but I, I I think I have a good understanding of passion and the different realms of passion. And anger takes energy, and um, yeah, <laughs> whoever's doing this, spend your energy somewhere else. You'll be well, much happier. Yeah, you know, it's, those were my thoughts exactly. It'll be very interesting to see what response we get. Whether we get, uh, you know, some of those kind of people who will only, you know, never would have sought us out otherwise, but may may tune into uh, to listen to this, and then we'll see what sort of comments we get. But uh, hopefully, they'll be amusing. Oh, I'm uh, just interested. Interested. If, these, if these people come along, stop doing the Wikipedia thing. It drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've just that's a red rag to a to a bunch of a field of bulls. Um, it's interesting. I, I mentioned, you know, um, wondering if maybe tribalism wasn't the cause of, of, of some of the response to, to what you said, Dennis. Um, and now I'm just sitting here thinking, well, the people who are doing this, presuming it's the same group of people, but probably it is, you would think, um, that, that are doing, for instance, editing of a Wikipedia page. They, they've literally created themselves a little, a little tribe there, sub-tribe. haven't they? They've... they've that's what they do now is the a person has decided to go out of their way even if it's just the wikipedia page and not comments anywhere else or posting on neogaf or whatever it might be it's literally that's something they do they've they've now decided that part of the definition of who they are as a human being is to go onto a wikipedia page and make quote-unquote funny alterations to to someone else's wikipedia entry which 
is supposed to be a reflection of their work as uh, as an individual. There's all sorts it's of factors at play. Bizarre. I mean, some people just get a kick out of Schadenfreude because their own lives are terrible. Yeah. There's uh, there's tall poppy syndrome, um, and I think yeah. in this case, um, because there was at least a perception that things had started to go, you know, wrong. For, in some ways, for you, Dennis, like you know, with mm. with the the reception of too human and whatever, that that some people will just pile on. It's like, yeah, you know, right. th- this, you know, some there's a weakness here. We can. It's like a, it's okay. like a. It's, it is the sort of mentality like, or mob mentality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, and and to be fair, things did go wrong. Um, yeah, went sure. really really wrong for a long time. And mm. um, but it's it's really funny because you know there are people and Phil, you remember this. There were people posting. In the precursor days, back when Phil first jumped on board, who what did they vow? They vowed to any project that I was on, they're going to follow me and destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it was it wasn't like they were writing this everywhere. And it's like, who are these people? It's and, a pretty bizarre um, way to exist. I think. It's it's yeah, and, and you know, um, hey, look, um, I I I'm sure we've talked about some of the things I'm sure it said other things that really upset people. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really here to make games and try to make the best games that I can and try to entertain people. And, um, and I know that this kind of thing comes with that role. So I'm not complaining about it per se or anything like that, but it's, it I would be really surprised. Maybe, maybe you won't. And that'd be, that'd be a great change if you guys didn't get any, any, those type of fans coming to the site and and making comments Mm. and stuff. But you know, I'm sure there'll be some. And I assume uh, some of these people took great pleasure in the critical reception to X-Men Destiny. Huh, yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. is that something you could you want to talk about? I know there were there were uh, issues around it. Um but I'm I'm going to assume, you know, this is it. I I don't think James has played it either. I haven't played it. Mm-hmm. All I know about this game is that it was the last game to be released with your studio, yep. your old studio's name on it, and the critical reception in 2011 was not good. No, it was, it was, it was very poorly received. Um, yeah, there was um, all kinds of problems with that title. The budget was cut in the middle of the project, and um, there were all kinds of things going on. And I, uh, There was a, a Nice Gamer uh, interview where I told the details of that. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, I was referring to the Chris Roberts Star Citizen thing where they had all these anonymous things at the same time or just after after that um, uh, there was this X-Men Destiny article that was written on the same lines that was really really yeah. haunted the precursor team and mm-hmm. it's that kind of so so first of all the budget was cut um, Marvel bought um Oh, sorry, Marvel was bought by Disney. Mm. Activision was suddenly working for a competitor, which no one, no one liked that arrangement anymore. There were tons of layoffs at Activision at the time. Uh, the project almost got canceled. There was just so many things going on. Um, and that project, from a production standpoint, really just didn't have a chance. I was, the litigation was going on. I was super distracted. I wasn't even the director of that project. No. Um, and but I was I ran Silicon Knight, so I'll take responsibility if that's what people want to throw. But if you look at the credits, I was not the director. And um, the the bottom the bottom line for that is I think you had all this press noise still about all that going on, yeah. and then at the same time, um, you know, we had budgetary issues, production issues, and um, you know, it was just a, a real mess overall. And um, you know, 
Wish it could have been better. Everyone tried. Actually, Activision tried. Marvel tried. Disney tried. Everyone tried. Mm. Uh, it just It's just one of those projects where the timing was really bad. It was in the middle of a corporate buyout um, where no one had contemplated that buyout. Um, mm. And uh, certainly some of the contracts were set up had not contemplated Disney buying Marvel. I, I had never even imagined it. And then, you know, uh, which I think has turned out great for Disney. And I think long term is a, a great thing. But we were just caught in, caught in, you know, that transition. And, you know, we mm. paid for it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Again, I think, you know, I'm sure there, there are, you know, so many individual moments and, and decisions and, and whatever that, that caused a game like that to come out that, you know, was I'm sure disappointing to probably as to 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 the people who worked on it as much as anything. But oh, again, yeah. I think that you know the some of our listeners and even even those of elsewhere would would not have a necessarily a grasp on how if all these big companies and this studio that had made good games before wanted to make a good game, how did they end up making? you know, a bad game, whatever. It's, I think it's a hard concept for people to grasp. Um, yeah. You know, well, what I mean? it, it, yeah. It, and it comes down to, if I could, exp- you, you, you get to the point where you're always trying harder to make the game good. You do everything you can, you throw everything you can in it. It eventually you get stuck with some binary decisions of, do we survive and complete the game or do we not complete the game and not survive? Um, and those were some of the choices literally we were faced with it. Uh, it was, you know, when, when you have a certain, but when your budget gets cut and you, you, you write your, you put your projections out and you map out all the people and suddenly you have a lot less people on the project and you have to do the same amount of work, if not more. And, you know, things, it's, you just, until you're in that maelstrom and the morale hits and, uh, the, the, don't forget Silicon Knights was, laying off already mm. from other yeah. projects that were canceled. It was a really awful, awful time. And, um, you know, no one was happy. Uh, it's just, um, it, and it was just, what can you do? You know, um, the game came out, um, which in itself was kind of a miracle. I didn't, I didn't know if it ever was going right. to make it. Um, but it, it, it's not, and the funny thing is, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. It's not for lack of trying of all the parties. Mm. Um, certainly everyone tried and, and, you know, we, um, at one point met with Disney and Disney was looking at taking the project over cause they really loved it. And they knew that there was going through all these production issues and they you know, they had their own game division and, and they were, uh, looking at what was the best thing they could do for their long-term goals. And it just turned out that things were so complicated and it never happened, but it came very close and I did everything I could to rescue that game. Um, and, um, at the end of the day, you know, if you're, if you start, you know, building a sports car and in the end you, you're like, you got to build this Chevy, you know, and you're, you, it's not a hundred thousand dollar car anymore or whatever your number was. It's, it is your typical, Mm. you know, (laughs) your typical regular car. That's a huge shift. It's a huge shift. Mm. And at the same time, still got to come up with all the different versions on the Wii and, you know, all the different consoles. It it, it was very difficult. And and look, no one is more sorry than me uh, on, on, you know, on the way that that came out. I, I really, 
I really wanted that game to be the best it could be, and so did everyone working on that project. Um, but it just it just wasn't in the cards, and that stuff happens. And yeah. if a lot of people think that the developers themselves are in control of everything. I really wish mm. that that was the case. Yeah, I bet you do. It's just not true. It's not true, not true, not true. And and in, even when we were second party to Nintendo and Nintendo had billions of dollars, I I was not ever in total control, no. you know, ever. Yeah. So, and it's just it's just not the way it works. And and if you, uh, you always answer, there's always someone to answer to, and there's always something that happens. Like you look at Eternal Darkness and 9-11, no one ever could have anticipated that and suddenly we're dealing with this and you know so these are the kind of things that you know happen and it's it comes down to making video games are really hard making entertainment's hard and um you know no one's got a flawless record not that i know of um but um you know uh certainly um really sorry for how that turned out it's all right i'm not making you grovel um no, <laughs> not trying I, if it seems like i'm groveling i'm not i'm sorry just talk um but it neatly brings us the, that that talk of uh, you know control to precursor games and uh, and 2013 and trying to get um, you know crowdfunding off the ground for uh, uh, Shadow, Shadow, Shadow of the, the Eternals. Eternals. Um, yeah. And do you think you know I, I you know I, I think I, I hear and see a lot of uh, of crowdfunding now. Sometimes it goes swimmingly and without a hitch uh, at the start, but then runs into problems later on. Sometimes it runs into problems at the start. <laughs> um, and the general consensus seems to be, you know, people come out of it having attempted it as well. You know, it's a learning curve. Um, is it something that you're going to pursue f further? Uh, in the future, possibly. Um, I think. I think that's always an avenue. I think... When I look at precursor games, that's if anything, precursor games was a precursor to Gamergate, <laughs> and I really and I mean that from a perspective of if you look at a lot of the press and not all the press, but the majority of press focused on should we trust Dennis Dyack? <laughs> should like all the same stuff linking back to that X-Men Destiny article where it said I embezzled money from Activision or whatever was completely untrue and just mm. completely stupid. Um, and all the other things they accused me of in that article were not once did they ever look at the, We actually had a fully running playable demo that you could play for 15 minutes that was way more than most Kickstarters, yet none of these people actually talked about the game and whether they thought it was a good... They just talked about me or... Something about um, whether the money was safe or whether we're trying to rip people off. And we worked, uh, the people at Precursor put in, everyone, no, no one collected salary, worked uh, out of our own pockets for a year to put that demo together, worked on the Crytek engine. I thought it was, you know, the videos are still out. They're still on the Quantum website. If you want to check out the Quantum website, you can. And we, we, we went to uh, uh, Comic-Con where like hundreds of people played uh, played the demo and it was really frustrating for me because I think that it really shows in my mind when we started out earlier that I think it's up to the it's really up to critics themselves to actually talk about the content and not talk about the noise um, and I think Gamergate now um, and it was funny because I, I know when I got a little bit involved in Gamergate over the last year or so, people were like, hey, Dennis Dykes jumping on the bandwagon. I felt like saying, hey, man, I was back there in 2006 saying how ethical is reviewing games before they're done. 
<laughs> and um, but uh, you know, I think now it's really starting to come out that that we really need to look at as the reviewers themselves need to you owe something to your audience. You need to talk about the games. And there were like four or five sites. Like IGN was great. Uh, Operation uh, Rainfall. Uh, Leviathan. There were a few, Phil. Am I missing any others or that were pretty fair? No, I but think. I'm, I'm really surprised you got the name of Operation Rainfall right because I don't think you ever have. Oh, there <laughs> we go. It's a first for everything. I, 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 I'm I know. Bad so, so I, 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 yeah, I'm going to jump in there. I just could say, you know, a huge part of my job is fixing Dennis's typos. And yeah. he, yeah, it's funny. It's hilarious some of the things he types about these things. And I don't think he's ever got that one right. Um, but, um, <laughs> write it down. Write it down. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think, I think, frankly, I think game journalists work for their audience too, and uh, they should be talking about the games. And um, so I think crowdfunding certainly has gone from a peak of people raising millions and millions of dollars uh, to some of them failing, and most of them probably failing, and and uh, board games being the most successful on Kickstarter. But I think I think Precursor ran into things once again way beyond the control of anything we personally could have anticipated. Like I had no idea. And, and, and you can see the video that's out there about, it. I had no idea people actually believe that X-Men destiny article. And then before we knew it, everyone's talking about all these things that I did. And I was like, what? And everyone who was that precursor knew none of that stuff was true, but um, you know, it, it was said enough and, and uh, apparently all the press believed that it was true or Grounds something like Grounds for legal action. Oh, I've had enough of legal action. I mean, certainly, <laughs> certainly a lot of people suggested that we did. Um, right. And, uh, you know, uh, Gawker's already being sued by Hulk Hogan. So um, I think, I think though, <laughs> that in some sense, yeah. you know, they're ethically bankrupt. And, and, and what I mean by that is um, there's certain journalistic ethics that you need to look at when you're dealing with anonymous sources that they completely didn't follow at all. And I only know about this stuff because I did that podcast where I talked about it. I said, well, let me do an internet search on journalistic ethics. And first thing that comes up, if you're dealing with anonymous sources, you should never allow personal attacks. And if you look at the recent one on Star Citizen, that's all that's in there is personal attacks. Never, never uh, allow a voice to be heard unless you have like evidence like there's written evidence of these things occurring and mm. you don't see any documents you'll see any of this and it's all the same and there's there's this pattern of things that i i know it gets clicks and and it, i guess it's making money for them and i'm sure the x-men destiny article is one of their best articles ever and i know steven Tatilla said it's one of the most articles he's most proud of i think it's one of the ones he should be most embarrassed of uh it's it's in, in my eyes there's no efficacy there whatsoever and and there's no evidence that any of that was ever true. And I have overwhelming evidence that it wasn't true. Um, and you know, audits and legal documents and all kinds of stuff that just show that there's this and the people that he interviewed, there's just no way they could even have the information to even make the kind of commentary that they make. Not, well, not only that, talking about what I was thinking at the time, no one can ever knows what anyone else is thinking. It's just all of these things in general, one needs to ask and why I, I responded to Gamergate and why it resonated with me is, is this good for gaming journalism? And I, I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's good for the games industry. And I think the games industry should talk about video games. And we're talking about all these other cultural things about um, um, whether uh, women are being represented well. And, you know, when I made Eternal Darkness, uh, Alexander Roy Voss doing her PhD in mathematics 
normally proportioned. Um, I didn't do those things because I was trying to be a feminist, but I guess that's what I am. I, I was just, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm a humanist because I just think everyone should be equal. Uh, but at the end of the day, now that's what I'm considered sort of like a feminist game designer because I, I portrayed a, a, a woman in that point of view. But I don't really know of these big misogynist things in the industry. I've never seen them before. When I talked to Amy Hennig, same thing. She had never seen them before. And I'm not saying that they don't exist. I just don't think it's a major problem. And yet we see these press after interview after interview saying all these problems. And, and I'm just like, what's going on here? So from that perspective, when I look back on Precursor, um, I see it as sort of a, a precursor for all those things, and, and a real shame. Um, I think um, I think that 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 team and that project had a great potential, and um, it just it didn't have a chance. It was it was uh, for whatever reason uh, forces were aligned against it, and it suffered a, a brutal death. <laughs> yeah, um, there were so many things as well. I mean, being being really on the front lines with that. One of the one of the good examples that I always uh, come back to when I'm thinking about this is I spent probably a couple of months dealing with one particular site. I'm not going to name who, but they were constantly claiming that we didn't have a playable demo, that we were just showing off the same video over and over again, and that they they've compared the frames and everything else, and we don't have anything, and I'm, we're just trying to lie to people that we have something because it's all a big scam. And I'm like. I, I showed them videos of me playing it on my laptop. It, it's there. I can do different things. We had, uh, you know, webcasts where we were playing it and taking questions from people, and you know, showing off different things that people wanted to look at. Um, we put it in front of like hundreds of people at Comic Con, and still that example kept going, and it was getting traction. And other people would start parroting it, and it was just so many things like that. But um, one of the things that I think was the biggest learning experience for me in that was how much work kickstarter is mm. i mean it's a 24 yeah, 7 deal like we were non-stop just managing the kickstarter itself and trying to produce content for it and uh it seems like at that point if you've got any negativity against you it doesn't matter what you do how much you show uh, um like we went down to splitting out how the budget was going to go uh we uh, our coo sean jackson was really really good about putting out where the money was going to get spent how it was going to get spent all of that stuff is kind of just became irrelevant. And, uh, and it's a shame because what we did have was a community of like three to 4,000 people who were actively designing parts of the game, who were coming up with lore, who were coming up with art and music and characters and you know, new sanity effects and things like that. It was such a buzzing community of really positive people that just really wanted to see the sequel. Yeah, yeah and they, they, they were making their own magazine. That was awesome. They were yeah. publishing a, 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 like a... A, what a bi-weekly or monthly magazine yep. on on the project and they got to like was it four issues or five issues it was amazing or five, yeah. all these assets on ice or are they no they're they're on the site still aren't they, they are they are they you know is is there still potential for this oh yeah these resources to be used in in the you know oh yeah so the quantum, spiritual sequel or whatever you yeah quantum acquired all that stuff from uh, precursor. So when we formed Quantum, we acquired all that stuff from from uh, from the previous company. So Precursor's gone now. Yeah. And um, but yeah, so that stuff is still all on the website and still all there. And um, once we reignite things, we hope that we'll get mm. the same reception as it did before and stuff. Um, but it was a, such an awesome thing going on there. It was incredible. And you know, it would also. Uh, one thing I'll say is a lot of people were really disheartened when it just didn't go forward. You know, um, 
and there was not really a lot anyone could do at that point. It was a real shame, and um, it was it had it had awesome potential. So, and and I think Precursor did in general. I you know the team was pretty fantastic, and um, but it met barriers that no one anticipated, and you know that was certainly one of them. The negative press was. I just I had never seen anything like it before, really, frankly. Yeah. Do you think you can sort of shake this negativity and kick on and eventually, you know, just feel like you're making games and not being judged for what's gone before? Uh, in a on a related note, you know, um, I I totally hear what you're saying as regards to the uh, you know the um, ethics in games journalism type stuff, and um, to the point that, as I say, the with Kane and Rince, we not only make sure that we finish games, we play games that are finished, we finish games. We don't even talk about games until we've actually seen them all the way through. So there's no, you know, yep. you know, we don't get fooled by front-loaded games and we don't get, um, you know, we, we try to see it through difficulty spikes and whatever and, and all that sort of thing. So I'm totally behind that. But surely, as an obviously highly intelligent man, you can see that allying yourself, even with the phrase Gamergate, when a certain kind of person has also allied itself with that tag. There are some, you know, the, some of the sort of the most vicious right wing people on the oh. internet have used that yeah. as a, as a, as a banner, as a flag to wave to not, yeah. not say, well, you know, games journalists are a bit tight with each other and, 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 you know, and what, you know, your complaints, but actually it, they're using it as a flag to say, you know, we want our, uh, our bare-breasted women to be available to be raped in our open-world games if we want them and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure that you know you can see that there's uh, there's merit in discussing. Like I take again, yep. I take your point about misogyny in the industry. It's something that I you know I talk to my partner. She works in the police over here, and she hasn't come across much of the purported everyday sexism that is that is around. And so her experience, she's not, you know, she doesn't feel widely moved to make a feministic stance in that in that area. However, um I don't think, you know, it, it seems a shame that Gamergate, even if even if it was set up with the best intentions, feels like to, mm. to, to some of us like it's been pretty much hijacked by some of the worst dregs of society to um, you know, say that there should be no representation of of uh, diversity. Uh, you know, whether it be sexual or, or ethnic or, what, or whatever in games. Um, and it, and it, I I feel I fear that even you know people who kind of associate themselves with that tag are kind of ending up tarred with the same brush. Well, so um, I think your point's well taken. And and uh, so if any, so being from Canada. The most conservative people are considered extremely liberal. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I think I'm the farthest from right wing that's ever possible. And I, I'm a, and I've said this many times before in interviews. I think the medium is the message, and you really have to try to understand the messages in your content. And I, I don't think, um, I don't think I would ever be in favor of. Uh, rape scenes or anything like that and nor am i encouraging anyone to do that and um if anything like one of the one of the things i'm very critical of i appreciate it how well it's put together but i also am very critical of seven because i think it personifies serial killers and um regardless uh, and you can start talking about the nuremberg rallies and the nuremberg films and all of those mm. you know deeply seated issues on what kind of messages are and i think we all have to be very Thoughtful, and I have no issues uh, talking about those things. Um, 
I, I am concerned when people start stating things as facts and there's no evidence for it. Um, and being tarred by the brush of Gamergate, I, I, people have described me as sort of a Gamergate neutral because I certainly don't agree with everything in Gamergate. And there's a lot of people that saying that uh, it's it's because of academia. This is all coming from you know backgrounds. I, I, I work with academia all the time. I love academia. They're they're most of the people that I've, if not all, I, I, I probably all without exception, I've never really had these issues ever come up. They're just trying to figure out what's great for games and how do we create a, a knowledge base for games to help video game makers make better games. Mm. So, so, so I guess if I'm tarred from it, um, well, it's just, it's, it's just another layer. <laughs> another by, layer of tar. <laughs> another layer of tar for me. Feathers but, on top. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But, um, and, and again, I don't, back everything i just parts of it do resonate and sure. i guess because it's so close because of all the experiences i've had with the efficacy and the games journalism and when you know if you read the niche gamer article um there are a lot of really good press out there um but there's just some that are so bad sure. that it just draws everyone else down and and so i agree i i'm really if anything for the efficacy and matters and talking about what's ethical um all the misogyny issues and stuff i it's just very difficult. Like I, I, I consider myself a humanist. I, I consider myself a feminist. I guess from the standpoint of, mm. I think everyone should be treated equally in any way possible. Um, and um, I'm certainly not right wing, and I'm, I'm uh, I don't think I am anyway. But I, you know, again, when it comes to censorship, I don't think we should mm. censor things. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to make things that <laughs> I don't agree with, but that's yeah. you know, what do you? I, I just don't want to be the judge of that. I, yeah. I, I'm really more of. You know what can we look at in things and and uh, so, yeah. Um, so it's it's a very good point. I, I I don't know what else to add to what you say. No, I think you've you agree with you. So I think you've expressed that really clearly. But I think it was important. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think just because uh, some people hear hear the term and uh, as Leon said, sends up uh, sort of red flags and yeah. and it's important, obviously, just to clarify where it is you stand without just uh sort of well i, I using guess the I, term gamergate and not clarifying i guess yeah I, I to be clear i i, I really the efficacy in games journalism really resonates with me because it's i think it's important and the industry is important to me um all of the other stuff and i know there's a lot of noise and i know there is certainly a lot of right-wing people associated with it i you know yeah that's not me <laughs> cool um I think, you know, we've run incredibly long, but I'd, I'd just like to finish up on the sort of, you know, looking at the, the a little bit of, of what quantum entanglement are doing, what the future is, the next, what the plans. We know that you've um, done some work on, uh, your company's done some work on movies, pre-visualization yep. and stunts for Pacific Rim, Scott Pilgrim and others. Yeah. Um, you're doing some television stuff. Um, and yeah, we, well, I mean, obviously Kane and Rince, we're pretty much video games and nothing else. So what can we expect, um, in the way of, I know you just can't come on here and announce a game, but you know, <laughs> give us a clue or something. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, well, let me, let me start with just, let's sort of finish the long story, the long narrative that we've been yeah. sort of talking about the history. So after Precursor, I took a break. Uh, for a while, and um, I don't know if you guys know, but um, I was pretty uh, heavy for a long time. I was very overweight at Silicon Knights, oh. and I lost about 130 pounds. Wow. And during that time, uh, up, uh, 
Paul Rapovsky, who uh, did the motion capture for Two Human, he's the he's the guy in the film and television industry. He created Lost Girl. He's 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 worked on he's worked on all those other titles you talked about. And he said, "Come on, let's let's start talk about starting a company." And and he's like, "I I know this one guy. He's a good friend of mine, um, and he's uh, CA. He used to run movies and television at um, CTV, um, and." You know, he was an investment banker, and that's Jonathan. And we all got together one day, and we started talking about, let's, what can we do that's truly different? And for me, I've done video games for so long, um, almost uh, almost 30 years now. And um, I, was, I wanted to do something different. And films and television are certainly something I can learn a lot from. And I'm always about cross-pollinization. And, and um, Eternal Darkness run won, like, uh, AIS Award, our... Uh, for writing and screenplay and stuff. So basically, I guess the equivalent of the Academy Awards in our industry for writing. Yeah. And I've got computer science degrees and I know comparatively our industry compared to the film and television industry, uh, just generally not as good as far as scripts go and, and, and as far as dialogue goes. Now, I know there's some bad storylines and bad things in Hollywood, of course, but I think in general, there's just a higher level of, authorship mm. and so i'm really interested in that so so i was like yeah let's let's do this so we decided to start quantum and i'm super excited about it because what we're doing is we're launching film uh we're preparing games with either film or television or in some cases doing a movie television series and a game all at the same time and uh we've been working behind the scenes for quite a while and probably will continue for the next little while we've been super quiet um and uh we did announce something on Friday, right, Phil? We just—it was just yesterday, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we announced a partnership with the Perimeter Institute, which is something very different, but I think it's a, a really good um, indication of where we're going. The Perimeter Institute is the world's leading scientific institute mm -hmm. for quantum mechanics. All right. And uh, Stephen Hawking is part of this this group, and uh, they're all into quantum mechanics. And what they're they're going to advise advise us on science. And we're going to work with them to get science into the mainstream through entertainment. So they'll advise us and we'll help get the message out of why science is cool and why people should be interested in science at, at the high school level. So people, so we get more people in science. And that's one of their main outreaches. So I'm very excited about that. We, we just announced that. And um, so you can expect, I guess, um, very – creative very different uh collaborations both from the film and television side also uh as i said earlier uh from uh trying to cross pollinize from different cultural boundaries uh working doing co-productions for people in different countries uh to sort of bridge that cultural gap to gap to create entertainment that resonates across the board so you'll still see i think games uh very Silicon Knights-like. Mm -hmm. um, but as well, you're going to start to see some of the television and film all sort of blending in as well as us doing co-productions with many different companies. Um, so I'd say bef before Silicon Knights was a very modular company where we'd have very large monolithic AAA teams. Now I'm looking at doing um, 
co-productions across the board. So we'll be working, we'll have like multiple team ups with multiple groups on both film, television and games and doing things that are going to resonate worldwide. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. And that's what we're working towards and have been working towards since we announced the company and we're super excited about it. I could, you know, so all of that story that you led, mm. that you heard about since we've been talking about the early days in cyber empires is all led to right <laughs> here, all the things that I've learned. And, um, and when you say, do you think I'll be able to shake, mm. uh, the the I, I I don't I I don't even have a choice. I'm moving forward. I'm going to try to create things, and I hope that uh, in the future uh, the games will be able to speak for themselves. And mm. um, I'm as you as you know, I, I've done very few of these, and I came I came on this podcast uh, because I really liked what you guys had to say. I have done almost no interviews. I think the only other interview I've done is maybe the Nice Gamer interview, and then before that was the IGN stuff when we announced the company. Up until then, I've I've done very very few. Wow. Well, we're incredibly yeah, grateful. Thanks, <laughs> Phil. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I just I just wanted to get one more point in about Please. quantum before we before we tie up. Yeah. Which is mm. um, when you think about licensed video games and licensed films, where you've got a crossover from one medium to the other, what that usually involves is multiple companies, lots of yeah. contract negotiation, crazy licensing, but mm. also the creative teams being different people. By mm. by doing all of these things together, you eliminate all of those layers. But then on top of that, you could have the same script writers that do the TV show or the film doing the video game and vice versa. So you've got that same creative talent that's able to work across mediums and mm. uh, keep the quality level consistent. And I think that's going to be a... Makes a lot of sense. Well, and I think to, to add to what Phil's saying, um, one of the advantages that we have uh, is... We have a key stakeholder from every industry, and often you've seen it before where uh, Hollywood will try to get into video games and fails massively, and video games will try to do movies and they fail massively. And it's because the people who are running these companies don't have a really good insight into the other mediums. Where with Quantum, you know, we're just starting out. So, uh, but I'm hopeful that our advantage is, and I'm very excited about it is that we have stakeholders from every single industry and we can advise each other on what the best direction is. Not do, like as an example, you take the Lord of the Rings movie um, and then all the video games that came out, I think there's one or two that were good, the rest were crap. Mm. Um, and it's because the people making decisions for the movies are not the same people making decisions for video games. Or, let me rephrase that. Uh, the people making the decisions on the video games don't know anything about video games. Yeah. And then they don't really truly empower the people making them. We're, we're all stakeholders here. Um, and when we launch an IP, we're going to launch it across the metaverse, I guess, where we're looking at film, television, video games all at the same time, where they all complement each other, where they don't cannibalize each other, where we're not going to do some cheap ripoff of the story or something for the video game or try to incorporate... Uh, video game elements in the movie like do something like this is all going to be first person it's going to be really cool and it's going to resonate with gamers and we know it's just going to make a shit movie um, <laughs> uh, and you know so those are the kind of things that we're, uh, we're really working towards and I'm personally very excited about with Quantum uh, and um, you know looking forward to seeing and also with all the change that's going on and there's massive change right now and a lot of people aren't aware but different markets i think the market in asia is actually 
overtaken the market in North America as far as size goes, or maybe as far as the West goes. Mm. So there are all these things that are massively changing, and it creates massive opportunity. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, being able to create games in the space. And, you know, um, I hope we can entertain people and uh, we can create games that people really love and we can create film and television that people really love too and uh, create communities where people can say, hey, this is the kind of content that I can really soak up and really enjoy and it will create an ocean of content that people can swim in and just have fun. So Sounds that's what I hope for. Sounds very uh, honorable and exciting and ambitious as ever. Uh, what's that website then, please? Um, the website is... Uh, Q-U-E-E-E.com. But I'm sure if you just Google quantum entanglement, that'll it'll be there. To, yeah. Yep. And oh, and the name, by the way, just mm. so people are wondering, we called it quantum entanglement entertainment. It's quantum entanglement is a quantum mechanics uh, uh, term where particles that are very far away from each other and can't possibly, you wouldn't think they would affect each other, do affect each other. Nice. And, yeah, it's to do with the spin of quantum particles being in yep. sync with one another, yeah. yeah. Yep, and and so that was the idea in us mixing all the different mediums where people think that they really don't mix well. Our, our idea was to mix them all and help them converge. So that's the idea of the company. Cool. Well, good luck Excellent. with it all. Um, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for, for well, for asking us to come on the podcast because it's not you know normally we'd have to start poking around and people would say i've no idea who you are and um yeah and to come on and speak to us for several hours and you couldn't have been more forthcoming and honest and open i don't think so just uh yeah should be a good listen for uh our our uh, faithful community i think we might put it out in two parts though because it's such an epic um, oh awesome yeah and <laughs> Thank you guys for letting us come on. Um, it has Thanks been actually talk. really fun, I think, for, yep. for us, for sure. Um, I'd also like to extend an invitation as well to you know, any of the listeners who are more interested in, in us and want to talk. You know, we, we have a forum. We're active. You can talk to us anytime on there. So feel free to, uh, to hit the website up and join up. And um, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is, is to be as open and as engaged with the fans as we can be. And mm. uh, We've had a lot of fun doing that over the last few years, so anyone's welcome to come in and say hi. Brilliant. Yep. Thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was great. Not at all. Thank you very so, much, uh, Dennis Dyack. Absolutely fascinating chat. Dennis Dyack, Phil Hames, and uh, thank you also, James, for struggling through the tail end of your illness as well. <laughs> no, it's okay. Apologies if I've been coughing a bit. I've been trying to keep it away from the mic. It's all right. Okay. Good night, everybody, listeners, that is. Before we yes. go, I've got a bonus question for Dennis because I never thought to think about this before, but it, it popped up in the middle of this whilst I was using my crunching. I couldn't really unmute at the time. Because <laughs> uh, you know what crunchies sound like? It's not going to be good with headphones. <laughs> right next to you. But um, I, it was the, the question, and it's a very simple one, and it was just what we were talking about with the naming of things and the, the politics and how the names came up and things like that. I was wondering about the blue Nintendo logo in Eternal Darkness. Ooh. Who came uh -huh. up with that one? Because that was cool. Um, it was the first time, uh, well, not the first time, let me phrase that. Um, Nintendo never likes their logo to be changed. No. Mm. 
And right. uh, I thought a thematical representation of eternal darkness and how it goes from uh, dark to light, which was one of the themes of the game, um, that really eternal darkness, even though it was so grim, it talks about the hope of humanity eventually overcoming all of the evils that are out there, even against... Um, you know, overwhelming odds. And so the whole idea of that, and I actually had, that took all, that actually was one of the hardest things to get approved. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And um, because they don't want anyone to, and, and rightfully so, they don't want anyone to tarnish their logo. They don't want... Incredibly to, famous get, logo, yeah. In yeah. That, in that shade uh, of red. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that was the idea behind that. I, and just uh, so you guys know, Phil, Phil's never asked me this question before. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cut this no, off and it's have one of those it as an Easter egg. It's been on my mind for yeah. years and I just never thought about it. And we've talked a lot about a lot of things. And this is just one of those ones that's never cropped up. It's a great question. It's, uh, yeah. I, I honestly figured the, uh, the answer was just going to be very straightforward. It was kind of a, a hidden sanity effect almost. You know, kind of playing with the the player's perception uh, mm. by showing them something slightly askew. Sometimes it you know, could have been red. You know, my favorite sanity effect in that game was not a sanity effect, but I think of it as one. And that's where you uh, you're going through doing the level. I think it was with Paul. I can't remember exactly. I think it was where you get to the boss and he just stomps on you and you're dead. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I was expecting the flash to come up afterwards, and it didn't come up. And I was like, oh no, he's just totally happy <laughs> with that. I if and here's a story to that too. When we were, when I was demoing that level for the first time to the guys from Nintendo, you they were they so they 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 would never let me rephrase that. You don't demo it. They just take the controller and they're playing it through. And they got to the the looks on their faces when that happened. They were like they're like oh Denison, you can't do that. And I go, but how do you feel? And I go, we feel bad. And and they're like they might get mad at us. And I go, oh come on, it's perfect. And it, it it took about a week. We talked about it back and forth, and they let me keep it in. Um, I just think that that was one of the ideas of breaking. And again, back to the logo, Phil. Right back to the, the logo of we we changed that logo because everyone on Nintendo was like, we're trying to do something different here. We're really trying, mm-hmm. and we're trying to break uh, a real stereotype of boss fights where you're getting ready for this boss fight. Everyone just expected that there was going to be no, like there's going to be, okay, there's going to be this boss fight and I'm going to beat this boss and everyone gets all set up for it. It's just so crushing to see you. It was, it was almost like we're, we were, uh, we're doing a little bit of, in, in my eyes anyway, a little bit of game of Thrones before the books came out, you know, know, we're killing characters off uh, that you really loved. And he was, he was meant to be one of the most developed. Paul Luther was meant to be one of the most developed characters that you really, you went through all that problem with the, the inquisitor who's really pious and you get through all that. You do all the things you potentially maybe kill someone with that knife. You're not sure. And, um, but at the end you just get snuffed out. And, uh, that was, uh, you write not a sanity effect, but it, it was one of my favorite parts too. I think the sanity effect was it not being a sanity effect, right? Because at <laughs> yeah. that point, you've experienced enough of them to think, oh, yeah, yeah, the flash is going to come up in a minute, and it just doesn't. It, it never <laughs> comes. Yep. Mm-hmm.